You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies Stargazing Edition. That's right, folks. We are finally getting to the post-Lucas Star Wars movies. I guess we already talked about Rogue One and Solo, but we're getting to the first movie, the movie that the Disney Corporation, when they took it over, the, the one that they did first, the one that they did before they did Rogue One and Solo. Oh, yeah. And before Last Jedi and before Rise of the Skywalker. Rise yeah. of the Skywalker? Ra- the Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. Force Awakens, a J.J. Abrams joint, and a movie that we are going to talk about. Let's get right into it. My name is Nathan Albertson. If I didn't say that already, humble and obedient uh-huh. host, you're the pastor. Yep. Uh, Jacob Menzel. That's me. Let's talk about Star Wars, A Force Awakens. The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens. There could be any number of forces that awake, but this is the Force. (laughs) The the mystical energy field that surrounds us and binds us. Not crude matter, are we? Jake, what do you remember about Force Awakens, seeing it the first time and stuff? What I remember is sitting down at my dining room table or around my living room and mapping out this whole stupid movie point by point by point by point down to crazy details with you going to the movie and watching exactly what we predicted play out before our eyes and thinking, well, they sure did exactly what we thought they would do. That's disappointing, but I guess they couldn't have done anything different. Yeah. It was a Kylo Ren's. I I remember we said uh, not only is Kylo Ren uh, Han's son, not only is he going to kill him? But they will be on a bridge, a space bridge over over a big pit, and Kylo Ren will open his lightsaber into him. Right. We got down to that level of detail. I don't know how or why at this point we were in the moment and we got down to that level of detail. And it really it made sound absurd to listeners to understand how that's even possible. But I think what you have to do, I think J.J. Abrams is so predictable. And the circumstances around this first Disney production had so much pressure that if you take J.J. Abrams and you take the circumstances and then you take just the details of who's in it that you see in the trailer. Mm. This is, these uh, are the kinds of things that have to happen. These these are the things that have so to happen. So how do you plug them into this group of characters that you know exist now? Exactly. And so you you knew it had to basically be, it needed to strike all the same beats of A New Hope. It had to be a new, another take on A New Hope. It had to try to do the work of signaling to all of the people who hated the prequels that this is the Star Wars that you know and love. And these are the people that you, and we're going to handle this and we're going to, and we're just not going to. Well, and then I think. We're not going to screw it up. I'm actually remembering a little bit of our conversation. We spent a long time on what are they going to do with Luke? And we realized that to have Luke in the movie would be to negate the so utility of, of anyone else. Who, who like, cares about these new characters if Luke's in the movie? Right. So Luke, so then, okay, Luke has to be the MacGuffin. Exactly. People don't know what a MacGuffin is. It's the thing or the object that everyone's looking for in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the Lost Ark. Yep. In, you know, a James Bond movie, it'll be like the hard drive with all the agents. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the first one, it's R2-D2 and the plans for the Death Star. Right. And it doesn't right. really matter. You know, they could have just as easily said, it's the plans for the this or that. All we know is that it's something important and everybody wants it and it's what drives the plot. Everybody's trying to find Luke. In Marvel movies, it's usually in a the cute- shining thing that opens up the sky and the makes glo- bad things. There's the glowy thing at the center of the city. And everybody's going to fight over possession of the glowy thing. Yep. You know, it's Star Wars. 
They're going to put the MacGuffin in a cute, interesting new droid. Yeah, we've got the droid, so obviously he's going to be carrying the MacGuffin. That'll yep. be a poetry with R2-D2 carrying the MacGuffin in the first one. Yep. We'll have the desert planet. We'll have we'll have our Obi-Wan character, but it'll be Han Solo this time. Right. The girl will be the idealistic dreamer that just wants to get Luke. off the desert. And there she was, even putting on her rebel X-Wing pilot mm-hmm. and having her little rebel X-Wing doll. Yep. And, and we're going to have to go to a place and learn some things and then regroup and then they'll lay it and then we'll have the thing and then... Now, I think a little bit of our conversation may have been, well, they could do another super weapon, but they won't be that bald-faced, will they? And then, yes, they will. Yes, they will. I think... We basically said, yep, they're just going to do another super weapon. Mm-hmm. A bigger, better Death Star 3. Yeah. And Oh, man, I hate that scene in the control room or whatever where he's like, <laughs> he's like uh, <laughs> if the Death Star was this big, then <laughs> Starkiller base is this big. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, uh, <laughs> we got the dude walking around. Well, uh, if it's that big, then it has to have some sort of... Let me move my hands in a sciencey way and say mm. the words thermal oscillator. Yeah. <laughs> thermal oscillator. <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, that was convenient. <laughs> oh man, watching the Rogue One really detracts from this movie because yeah. everybody in Rogue One died to get those first Death Star plans, and now we're gonna watch a bunch of morons <laughs> in a room be like, "Well, it probably is a thermal oscillator, so I guess we just blow that up and, <laughs> and it'll all blow up." <laughs> Exactly. Like, why didn't they do that the first time? Jen Erso could still be alive. <laughs> anyway, we mapped it all out, and it was we we've actually consciously we we still do it for fun sometimes, and we do it for profit sometimes on this very podcast. But yeah. we've actually tried not to do that as much because yeah. Well, that was a hard lesson. I don't know that I've been to an event movie that was more disappointing out of the gate right because you felt like you'd already watched it yeah it was just like oh oh yeah okay uh-huh yeah and, and, and here's the thing it was like reading the book and then watching the movie mm-hmm. right it's like you know the characters you know the plot points you have all of these imaginative possibilities for how it could all how it would look or how right. it could all look on screen then you have to go watch jj abrams's version of it which is I dare say, not the coolest version, not as cool as the version in your imagination. It can't live up to it. It's, it's, the, it's, that, it's like you say about horror movies, the first two acts, there's a really scary monster off stage. And those are the scary imagination firing awesome and, acts of the but movie. But eventually they're going to have to bring that monster out onto the stage and then it's not going to be as scary. It can't, it can't be. And it's the same kind of thing. It's you know, you know what the beats are mm-hmm. and you've got it all mapped out and all of the ways and you've imagined the music and you've imagined the scenes and you've whatever. And then there it is. And it's just like, well, this was a serviceable version of what exactly of the book, but I kind of prefer the book. Well, and or I would have preferred the movie just did something different or took small risks, which the movie does a limited number of times, I'd say, with certain things that we'll talk about. But it's like, okay, you have the scene where Han Solo confronts his son and you're going to hit all the beats that we know you're going to hit. Can you do something with the? I mean, I know I say this all the time, but can you do something with the dialogue there? Can you take a risk with like having small, unexpected human moments? That's one of the things that I really love about the Marvel movies as much as they are just like a formula with the snarky humor now and everything. They, f- they do find 
within the yeah. confines of, of snarky humor often little human moments within these big grand obvious beats and that's what robert downey jr was a master of doing absolutely was he could strike those poses and do the things that were expected of him but he always found a way to just add little grace notes and yeah and that's that's what it's like that's why you go to who, who goes to a concert to see the album versions right straight up album versions of no what you want is you want to see these presumably awesome musicians you know riff and have new arrangements take some liberties do something cool exciting different with the same song that you know and love or whatever and you know especially that's true of like there there, there's a handful of really canonical jazz standards but in the hands of any one band any one person you know they're different Mm -hmm. and and they're different they can be different every night you know these stories the marvel stories whatever they're the same stories over and over again right the question is what grace notes can you bring what riffs can you go on how can you make it fresh how can you make this same one story fresh interesting entertaining exciting this well, time and it really is like jazz or blues in that we all know what we're here for which is actually not a weakness if that's what if you like jazz or blues it's a strength because then the entire interest is what's the interplay between what's expected and what's unexpected and how does the person find those grace notes for the, and still give us the thing, you know, the the blue song is still going to resolve with that, you know, going from the fourth chord to the first chord. It can't not do that, you know, to not do that is to not do blues, Exactly, but it can find an interesting way to get there. Yeah. And so the, the real problem out of the gate with the force awakens was that it really didn't, it was so safe throughout. Yeah. And which is why you pick Abrams in the first place, guys. I think they wanted something safe. I think George Lucas took a tremendous amount of risks creatively. George Lucas was going to like give us a whole trilogy on microbiology or some dumb right. thing. Like Lucas was all about the risk. Well, I have a quote here that I got from Lucas. He said his take on Force Awakens. He said, quote, they wanted to do, do, do a retro movie. I don't like that. Every movie, I worked very hard to make them different. I made them completely different. Different planets, different spaceships to make it new, unquote. That's what Lucas was all about, was yep. each you know each one of those original movies were, is going to be something different, different creatures, different planets, different adventures. And then the new ones, it's like new stuff, new stuff, new technology to show us new stuff. Yep. And then this movie is so safe. Yep. Completely safe. Completely safe. Do you remember liking this movie? I remember thinking that it didn't really matter and it was never really going to matter. It's like A New Hope is not a great movie. Mm -hmm. A New Hope set the table for Empire. And so it was really going to come down to what's this franchise's, if this franchise, if this new franchise or this new development of this old franchise Mm -hmm. is going to take off, Abrams can come out and give us a very bland table set that, nobody can hate right that's the goal then whoever comes in to do empire is going to have the table set to it's going to be in his power to knock it out of the park or to tank yeah and then ryan johnson comes out and he's like i'm a magician i made the table disappear (laughs) exactly i'm so clever (laughs) and we're all like i hate you (laughs) you know what if instead of eating food we ate Plastic. I mean, everything in, in this movie, and I'm sure that you're going to take us through it, but like yep. everything in this movie is, you can still go, uh, when you watch it again, it's like, 
what Abrams gave were tons of possibilities. Mm-hmm. He directed Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher to look at Ray in ways that could be reinterpreted as anything down the line. And then Ryan Once Johnson get, said, screw you, yeah, buddy. Yeah. Clang, clang, doors shut, windows <laughs> shut, close off avenues. Abrams is going to open them all back up. Yep. But yeah, so when we find out that Ray is Luke's daughter mm. or that Ray is Han and Leia's other, other daughter that they hid because, or that, or Leia's love child with Yoda, Holda, mm. uh, Holdo <laughs> somehow, or Obi-Wan's long lot, whatever it is, then all of those looks that he directed are going to like, you, we'll go back and watch The Force Awakens and reinterpret it all. Right. It'll mean something to us. That hug from Leia at the end, you know, the way that Han looked at her, the way that Han was like ready to take her on, you know, felt that some kind of boldness to her. The mm-hmm. What was the conversation between Han and Maz Kanata when she left? Who is she? How did the, did Maz Kanata arrange for, uh, manipulate the force vision once she had had the conversation with all these questions that are just like, right. that he put his mystery box out there and gave mm-hmm. us a bunch of questions to puzzle over until Ryan Johnson could come and. Actually, the answer was, it was boring. It was stupid. <laughs> Didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> Screw you. You spent two years theorizing about all this stuff. It's all meaningless. Well, I do want to defend Abrams a little bit. I think what this movie did that is actually, even though this movie is only four years old or something like that, this movie came out in 15, I think. What this movie did do, which is very easy to forget now in hindsight with Last Jedi and The Mandalorian and Rogue One and everything all doing it better, this movie did recapture the texture and the feeling of Star Wars in a way that we hadn't had since the original trilogy. And that in and of itself did feel special the soundscape the visuals the tactile lived in just the fact that kylo ren's what what i the the detail that really stood out to me this time is kylo ren shows up and his mask is banged up and that's the kind of lived in universe that george lucas created with the original trilogy and then you know as much as we are our prequel apologists that's something that he kind of that kind of got lost in the push to redefine the technology and get cgi and everything in there and to just tell the story of a much more together world. Well, and one of the th- smart things about Lucas is that he leaned into the tech that he had. So it's easier to create something futuristic and cool if you can beat it up and make it look old. Right. And worn. It makes allows you to have some excuses. Right. And then when CGI is in its early phases, too much detail is too, too hard. So make it all shiny and new. Yeah, exactly. And fresh, right? Like, yeah, he found ways of using what he had cleverly. What I do think that this movie did in a way that The Mandalorian does very nicely, in a way that all the Star Wars movies that have come after it did very nicely, but the prequels didn't do, is for better or worse, it is a sequel to the feeling of Star Wars in a way that the prequels never felt like they were. Yeah. And when people go to see sequels, I think what they want is, as much as anything... They don't necessarily want the same story. They don't want the same. What they really want at the end of the day, when you or I see a sequel or when a lot, anybody sees a sequel, what they really want is they want to feel the same thing that they felt. Yep. And I think JJ Abrams did a good job of making you feel the things that you felt as a kid. So I think this movie just feels like Star Wars in a way that a lot of the prequels didn't. And I don't know. I was thinking about like, like Jurassic Park three 
arguably actually a better movie than Jurassic World, but Jurassic World does one thing right and, and nothing else. But it does do one thing right, which is it kind of gives you that it Jurassic evo- Park it feeling. The we're going to Jurassic Park for the first time feeling. Yeah, and that's like what we actually remember loving about Jurassic Park, and so the movie gives you that, and it makes a gazillion dollars. Some bad sequels like Home Alone Two or something people tend to like better than adventurous things like Temple of Doom that actually get away from the thing that. Yeah, it's also why. A lot of sequels like Ghostbusters 2 or Men in Black 2 don't work is because they actually do the exact same story, but what they don't manage to do is get the same vibe. Get the same vibe because you can't. The The whole vibe was just that it was fresh the first time. Yep. So this movie got that. And I think it's really easy to forget that because Mandalorian's now doing it better every week on Disney Plus. Week by week. Because Rogue One New did baby it better. Yoda memes every week. You know, everybody's doing it now, but. J.J. Abrams did figure out how to... Yeah, he cracked it. It's sort of like uh, John Favreau cracking Iron Man. Yeah, exactly. Right? He, you go back and watch the first Iron Man. Okay, not, not one-to-one. First Iron Man movie holds up. Yes, it does. But it also had some things in it that it went some places that Marvel movies don't go mm-hmm. anymore. And, but, it, but it gave us a formula. Right. It gave us a vibe. And Abrams gave that to us. And and just to make the decision, like, it. we're going to shoot these practical, we're going to find real world locations as much as we can. That those if kinds we're going to of- have a cool new droid, it's going to have to actually work in real life. I want a, I want a droid that's a rolly ball. And that rolly ball has to be able to actually roll on sand and down and upstairs. Make it happen, puppet team. Right. I actually, as I've been ha- as we've been having this part of the conversation, I keep imagining the first shot of BB-8 just rolling through the sand because I really think that that just says it all. That's just that's a thesis statement for J.J. Yep. Abrams' Star Wars: is hey, it's a actual metal thing, or at least it looks like a very plausible metal thing rolling through sand. Isn't yeah. this what you missed for the last twenty years since Return of the Jedi? And it's yep. like, yeah, actually, we did. And this comes from a prequel apologist. So I think that that's, that's, the, that's the genius of the movie. I actually saw this movie, funnily enough, in one of AMC's wonderful, I want to say sem- sensory deprivation theaters, but that's only what it feels like. That's not what it's actually called. It's like the sens- sensory-friendly screening. Did you get the b- wrong ticket? Yeah, well, we knew it was that, but we didn't know Did what- Did you and I do that? No, I didn't know. I went with my mom, actually. Um, I was going to see it in IMAX with some friends, but I got a horrible stomach bug. And so the next day I was like, hey, mom, let's go see Star Wars. And they told the lady at the was like, oh, by the way, you know, like after we bought our tickets, this is like a sensory friendly showing, but it's fine. It just means, you know, the lights will be slightly up and the sound will be a little quieter, which in retrospect is not what you want for a Star Wars movie. But the way she sold it to us, it sounded like eh, it'll still it'll be, be the movie. Right. But it turns out you just sit there. In the theater, the lights don't go down at all, and then the movie just starts playing with no trailers. So, and the sound is really, really quiet. Like you can scratch your desk or do your fingernails or something like that, and you can't, you can't actually hear. I mean, my mom's in her sixties, and she just couldn't understand what the characters were saying, and I hardly could either. And there's all these kids and people, uh, whatever the polite word for you know people with issues <laughs> um people that you would want to take that yeah to, you want people who want to go see star wars but who 
would be scared by big loud noises or not understand them or you know maybe have some yeah i think this, this potential was actually freak developed out problems in, if it were dark and i think autism the autism awareness society is who partners with amc on these things so there was all these people like that and i'm glad you know fine great that they have those but what they shouldn't do is advertise them for you and i you know i should i should be told very clearly that that's what i'm paying a ticket for and i should be maybe given a discount anyway i saw about five minutes of that and then the there were obviously a number of people that hadn't been told that's what it was because they started shouting at the screen and then we all walked out and they gave us tickets for the next showing so i saw i had the weird experience of seeing like the first 10 minutes of this movie in this really dumb jank way and then i mean if i was like one of the true star wars faithful then i'd be making headlines you know crying about how there's a a news story about the theater dying halfway through the movie and people crying and saying you know they took away our first experience experience, and that's something you can never get back class action lawsuit (laughs) (laughs) exactly that happened to us with ready player one like five times was it ready player one yeah the sound went out and then we had a replay we still don't know a different movie wasn't it Oh, yeah. That was you and I's favorite movie of 2019, nay, the decade, uh, Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah, Captain Marvel. We got to see Captain Marvel, the beginning, (laughs) the first half an hour of Captain Marvel. Like three or four times. It was amazing. (laughs) It stopped. The sound went out. It rewound. It started playing. Then it was like not synced up. And then... And then it just cut to the beginning and started (laughs) over. Yeah. So the best Marvel movie to have to (laughs) sit through the first act twice. Oh my goodness! And the you theater got babysitters, you know, at home with your kids, and it's like, are we really suffering through Captain Marvel four times? Right, like you, you could be doing so many things. You could be in a bar. You could be at McDonald's. <laughs> I know. You could right? be making out in the car. I mean, <laughs> there's like so many things you could be doing instead of seeing Captain Marvel. Uh, worst uh, date ever. That was a bad double date that we both went on. <laughs> I guess let's talk through this bad boy. Force Awakens, you ready to Let's do go it, on man. a journey? So, the sands of Tatooine. Should we mention that this? I, are, I mean, Jakku of Jakku. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the movie that uh, took everything about Star Wars and recreated it for people. The titles come up. I like to do a title crawl. Yeah. Check. This is a good one. Luke Skywalker has vanished. The Last Jedi. I remember people freaking out about who is the Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. The Title crawl of Force Awakens says that Luke is the last Jedi. Is it actually? Yeah, that's <laughs> it does. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I really like the f- the fact that it starts with Luke Skywalker has vanished. That's just a great hook for a yep. story. As much as it was the obvious one that we sat in your kitchen and figured out, it is. If you're gonna do Star Wars Episode Seven, and we've already got six of these under our belt, and we just need a great like, what's this movie gonna be about? A great thesis statement for the movie. Then Luke Skywalker has vanished. You could do worse than. Yeah, absolutely. Luke Skywalker has vanished. We also learn about the Republic and the Resistance, which I still don't understand. What is the distinction between the and why (laughs) in storytelling terms? Like, why not just make it that the Republic is fighting the First Order or that the Resist? But there's like a Resistance, and it's different than the Republic. Like, who cares? And why did they do it? And what is and what is it even? I don't actually understand the politics. Like, can you tell me what the First Order is and? where it came from and who the resistance is and how they relate to the Republic. Cause I'm still, we're like, so here's the thing. The rebel, basically it's a recreation of the rebel Alliance. The rebel Alliance is not really the rebel Alliance. 
because we had to retcon it being the Rebel Alliance when we had the remains of the old Galactic Republic in the Senate. So you had the Galactic Republic, mm-hmm. and that and Palpatine reorganized it into the Galactic Empire. Got rid of the Senate at the beginning of of New Hope. But that Senate still existed, was comprised of people who were the independent governors of their own systems and their own either planets or or systems of planets. Doesn't Tarkin say, the governors will now have direct control of their, or something like that? I don't know. Anyhow, you've got all of these people that have some kind of control and representation over their systems and the and the emperor has to maintain control over all of these systems so he has to try to work through all of these channels and all of these people one way or another or slowly replace them and that's what had been going on and leia and buzz aldrin bail organa yeah so they were maintaining their sort of like sovereign's way over the, the, the their cred so is mon mothma and all that but they were also low-key the leaders of this alliance of people who were resisting and rebelling. Which, as we found out in Rogue One and various other media, was a pretty scattershot group of pretty scattershot different organizations. Yeah, that were and, all just trying to come together. What we had are the, the organization of these sort of like splinter cells of people who have different ide- ideologies and different degrees of intensity and different motivations. Again, as we see in Rogue One, Save the Rebellion! Yeah, there's uh, What's his that name? guy, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, what is his name? I don't know. I can't think of his name. But he's he's on the extreme side. He would never join. Splinter? No, that's he's part of a Splinter's film. <laughs> what is his name? Shredder? Uh, why can't we think of his name? Bebop? Saul Guerrero. Saul Guerrero, yeah. So Saul Guerrero had his own. He would never join up. But there were these other places in these either, you know, Outer Rim places who were putting up their own rebellion or resistance in their little corner of the galaxy to the reach of the empire. And so there were these people like Leia and Bail Organa who were trying to gather and organize all of these people, this sort of network of essentially anti-empire terrorists, but who were really just the good guys fighting for the little guy. You know, all the Robin Hoods out there would be the better way to think of it. Right. Well, it's actually what Robin Hood does is he organizes all the different dissidents into the the Merry Men. Men. Exactly. And so that's what is sort of happening. And that's what coalesces in Rogue One. And now you suddenly have this rebel alliance that is, that actually can do something. Right. That has some power, that has some, and some of these old generals that didn't, you know, and warriors that didn't go into, you know, that defected when the Army of the Republic became the Galactic empires army of the galactic empire whatever it became right and so i think you have the same kind of thing which i think we'll probably see more of unfold in the mandalorian where you have hope so okay so now you've got the remains of this republic trying to build a new governmental system but you're talking about all these star systems across the galaxy trying to reorganize and rebuild trust and have some kind of do we want to decentralize? Do we want to be independent? Do we want to be united here, there, wherever? And one thing that's been clear on The Mandalorian is that on the outskirts of all this, a lot there's of bad nothing. guys are still... It's just the Wild West. Yeah. Right? And so then... And there's still the apparatus of the Empire in lots of places that's absolutely. being used by various individuals for their own gain. Yeah, so you have Imperial credits. Are they good or are they not good? Right. Who can use them and who can't and why? 
Or we're just a random tribes people, bad tribes people that happen to have an old ATST exactly. walker. How did we get it? Black market. One of us is an old stormtrooper. Like people, stormtroopers out there still daring to wear stormtrooper gear because mm-hmm. whatever reason, because we want to see stormtroopers on pikes is essentially yeah, why. But so basically, you know, you you blow up the Galactic Empire and then you've got this period of chaos and probably these little, you know, civil wars and other things happening. Who knows politically what's happening, but mm-hmm. what we do know is that they weren't able to put something together that was quickly enough, that was strong enough to resist a new movement organized by Snoke, Snoke presumably, to sweep in and pick up the remnants of the Empire and reorganize the remnants of the Empire into the First Order. And so suddenly you, now you have another big bad and then you have, again, all of these scattered systems. Well, now that they've got a common enemy, they can unite as a resistance force to that common enemy. But the new or- the First Order is not ruling over the entire galaxy in a way no, that the Empire was. you get was. the impression that it's... It, like it starts in the outer rim and it's it's like a foreign power coming in and sort of taking over in pockets different places and doing sort of the mob thing of uh, with some of these outer rim places of you sure do need protection, don't you? Because suddenly you're getting attacked. That kind of thing is something that we see the First Order doing in the show Resistance. Right. Rebels, Star Wars Rebels. You have Clone Wars, which is like, Here's what happened in these great big grand clone wars that led to the final thing where Anakin turns to the dark side and it all gets organized into the Galactic Republic and we get a sense of the politics across the board. Rebels is the story of one little splinter cell and how it all came to be, you know, united into the mm-hmm. Rebel Alliance and then resistance is basically the same right. same kind of thing where you've got some well-meaning people out on the edge of nowhere and suddenly the first order is like showing up and screwing with things. Well, I don't know why I should care and I don't know whether I actually do, but is the resistance sanctioned by the Republic? Well, I don't know that the Republic is a thing exactly. Okay. That makes sense. The resistance is basically just like anyone with any strength to actually fight this, uh, this yeah. scourge of evil. That's yeah. And, the- and Leia's sort of the lightning rod for mm. it. She's the one that's like, the one person that people can kind of get behind. Yep, because elderly, drug-addled uh, <laughs> Carrie Fisher is nothing if not an inspiring <laughs> figure. Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher. She'll argu- always be royalty to me, as Max Arguably two says. different people. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Although in this movie, I'm afraid that they, they come a little bit more close than I would be happy, I was happy about, but I, I guess we'll get to that. So we've successfully talked through the title crawl. Yep, and I've... Flex more nerd cred for you. <laughs> there you go. Speaking of cred, uh, what's-his-face doesn't have to spend any to get the MacGuffin from uh, Max Van Saito. He just talks to him. That's my amazing transition into this camp scene. When Poe Dameron and the last Alderanian, mm-hmm. or one of the last survivors of Alderaan, are sitting there. Yep, and they have a nice conversation. The fun thing about Max Van Saito, people don't know, is that he was in his 30s or 40s when he played the exorcist in a little film called the exorcist and he wore old age makeup 
and it's really good. It's one of the best old age makeups that's ever been done. And so that got him a lot of cred as an old man. And he's essentially been playing old men. Like everybody, he actually looks like the same old man in Exorcist, which is from 77. I think it came out the first year that Star Wars came out. But he still play. He's still the uh, one of the go to charming old men to bring into a movie like this. Also, quite good in uh, Minority Report as the spoiler alert bad, bad guy. guy slash twinkling eyed mentor to Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise until such time as he's not. He gives the MacGuffin to Poe Dameron, and we didn't. Abrams knows. We all know that he didn't have to actually establish anything if he jumped in mid mid camp talk well it's one of the things that is nice about this movie and re and um, i don't really want to make this into a beat up on the prequels because we've established i think we've done our work to say we like the prequels we like what george lucas was going for but in terms of execution <laughs> george lucas could be a little shaky sometimes and one thing that george lucas does is spend a lot of time on things that are tertiary to the actual stuff that we are interested in instead of starting in the middle of the clone wars which you could conceivably do yeah he wants to show you how they began how they began they began with some really boring trade disputes and some documents that people needed to sign and some senate squabbling which is not the stuff that fairy tales and uh space opera is generally made of but it did leave room for a really great animated uh series <laughs> Jake, I cannot allow you to talk about Clone Wars in this. Uh, <laughs> not when we're talking about something so much better. Max von Sydow gives a flash drive to <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. Poe Dameron, yeah. which is the MacGuffin. It's about yeah. as MacGuffin-y as a MacGuffin gets. like Actual physical MacGuffin. Yeah, and it's not anything. It's a flash drive. I mean, it's it really, a flash drive. It really is just a flash drive. An oddly um, shaped one. An oddly shaped one. And then... The Empire, or whatever they are, the First Order attacks, and you've got stormtroopers. Rattling in. Rattling in, and... Lights and dark and scary. And, lights and dark and scary. Yeah. I mean, it does start with a shot of adrenaline in a way that stately... Though Those those early prequels are very stately. Like, here's the Jedi, and we're seeing them in a proscenium wide shot of them walking into an environment and looking around, and now we're seeing the environment, and now we're... It's interesting because George Lucas kind of, what's the word? He pioneered that, st- that him and Spielberg pioneered that style of we're going to do a shot of your the person's face and then we're going to do their point of view. You know, I mean, Hitchcock, lots of people, they didn't pioneer it, but they popularized that whole, we're going to put you on the ground in yeah. the exciting spectacle. But then George Lucas didn't do it in the prequels. No, but Abrams was smart to say out of the gate. We want you to feel there. Yeah, we want you to feel there, and we want you to feel oppressed, and we want you to feel the power of the bad guys, and... Yep, the sounds, a lot of attention to detail is going to go into the soundscaping, the sound design of absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this movie sounds the most like a Star Wars movie that just about any Star Wars movie has, and that's really nice. So they come down, and we meet Finn, although we don't... He's just F1. He's blood... We we have, we're we're marking him. Then he gets marked for us, and so we know that he's a guy. Yeah, you like that stuff? It's pretty good stuff, I guess. It's fine. It's, it's good. Fine. I like the I like the image of blood smeared on a stormtrooper. Like it's a nice way to have a conversation with the old movies. You know, to say we're doing our own thing this time. There's going to be a stormtrooper who 
has a conscience and yeah visually we're going to represent that with just a, hey there's blood now in star wars there's never been blood there's before. never been blood in star wars also we're signifying that this movie's not so much for kids from the get-go which jj abrams thinks is really cool but also what about parents with kids how do they feel about that like it's not so cool in my opinion well the problem is all the kids turned into grumpy 40 year olds and 50 year olds and so in order to make them feel the same level of excitement you kind of have to amp things up and you could say everyone does a good job of that. It was the decision. It was the decision that Disney made to live in with it. Yeah. So uh, we can't criticize the movie that they didn't make. Nope. And I dare say we've, you know, I mean, Rogue One's the perfect example of a movie where we're quite happy that they, they made an adult star Wars movie, but the Skywalker saga, you could saga, you could argue, um, doesn't need to be so bloody. And then we have the introduction of Kylo Ren. Awesome. You like that? He shows up. He's got a scary, well-defined, unique mask and appearance and silhouette. His voice is scary, and he unleashes a new force power on us out of the gate. Yeah, stopping that blaster bolt. In midair. It's awesome. It's super awesome. Abrams is like, you know, I'm setting the tone. We're going to see, we're going to feel like we're in a Star Wars movie. We're going to feel like we're in a Star Wars movie right away. We're going to get blasters. We're gonna, there's going to be an X-Wing. There's going to be a cool new droid. There's going to be a scary dark villain in a mask. There's going to be a lightsaber and there's going to be force powers that you've never seen on screen before. And this is all going to happen in like the first five minutes because, and then you're going to, your adrenaline is going to be so jacked that you're just going to be along for the rest of the movie. Pretty smart, pretty smart filmmaking, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, that is, I mean, that's a technique since, actually, James Bond, I think, actually pioneered that, which is, we're going to start with a ridiculous action scene that has nothing to do with anything, but- There one, will be a cool stunt, and there will be a cool invention. Right. A so cool gimmick. And, are, you know, if we can get a, you've a, never a, seen a sexy before. girl in there and some explosions and stuff, all the better. So we, we're going to front load that so that you're so excited about the movie- by the time the credits come and then we get into like, M's going to have him in his office and we got to talk through the plot and what's the MacGuffin. By the time we get to that stuff, you're hooked. You're in for the ride. Yep. And Spielberg and Lucas only became better at that. But then again, Lucas kind of forgot about it for at least uh, Phantom Menace and arguably Attack of the Clones and J.J. Abrams brings it back. I do not like Kylo Ren's mask. I do not like it, Sam. I am. I don't like it. It's, the existence of it or the mask itself? I like the existence of it. I think it's fun. I even kind of like what Ryan Johnson... I, I love everything about Kylo Ren, actually. I guess we'll talk more about that. But I think really smart way to make a villain for a new trilogy. And one of the more interesting things that Abrams did. And we'll see where they go with it in the next one. But I like the conception. And so the fact that he's just a punk wearing a mask wasn't at all disappointing to me. It was invigorating like oh this guy just thinks he's darth vader so he wears a spooky mask darth vader wannabe yeah he's a wannabe he's a junior which i like even gave us a scene saying don't think that he's just a petulant brat he's a poser right (laughs) (laughs) exactly grandfather show me the way (laughs) yeah he's tempted i will finish what you started that is a nice abrams inversion you know luke was tempted by the dark side kylo ren's tempted tempted by by the the light light side. side yep but I do not like, just as a piece of iconography, as a piece of design, maybe you could argue it's stupid on purpose, but I do think it's stupid. 
like Darth Vader, he's got a skull face, right? He's got like big eyes and a nose and a frown, basically, in that grill. Boba Fett, like, reminds me of a Spartan warrior or something. Like, I've loved a lot of the designs, but Kylo Ren, I don't know. I was trying to think about why it didn't work for me. It's just never seemed that cool. I think it has something to do with he has no facial features. He's just got almost like a like Shredder or like a ninja or something. Mm-hmm. Like there's this big black thing covering his mouth and his nose. And then he's got his eyes and those are fine. But then he's got like this brow, this grill that kind yeah. of functions as like, it almost makes him look like a gorilla. It just doesn't tell a cool story the way that. So the story that I have always imagined it telling, I, I've not thought too hard about the mask. I've simply accepted the mask. But uh, the story that I always thought it was telling is he did not create this mask. He did not design this mask. He did, this mask was not born out of necessity. Right. This is some ancient mask that he found somewhere that he adopted and has been playing in ever since. So he's just a kid that bought something at Hot Topic and thought that it made him dark and cool. Yeah. Rafe found in the wreckage an X-Wing pilot helmet and played in her X-Wing pilot helmet. And when BB-8 shows up, when the MacGuffin shows up, she is eating her food, sitting in the wreckage of a ship, outside the wreckage of a ship, putting on her dorky little pilot mask and imagining herself as some great pilot somewhere. And Kylo Ren found himself some ancient Sith mask of some kind or another. You know, he's the son of privilege instead of the son of poverty. So he gets to run around and actually force choke people or whatever Mm. (laughs) in real life, but he's playing in his own mask. Right. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's a, that's a good story. I like that a lot. I I, I love the fact that this movie comes down to two petulant underdogs that don't, uh, neither one of whom understands the power that they're channeling. I think that that's, that's cool and clever, but I just wish his mask was, I wish he'd found a better mask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's fair. I just, I remember from the first moment, it's just, it's one of the things that most stands out to me as being not something, you know, like here's the not Darth Vader of it all. Yeah. Starkiller. Like I'm not, I'm not so invested in the Death Star that every time I see the Starkiller base, I think, oh, there's the not Death Star. But every time I see Kylo Ren's mask, I just think there's not Vader. There's not Vader. Again, you could argue, and you just made a very effective argument that that's the whole point, and it's pretty smart. We'll see what we do with the reforged mask Mm -hmm. in the third one. I do love the fact that the mask, like I said earlier, is dented up. That was was fun. Yeah. Okay, so we go from there, and we meet Ray, and she's scavenging, and... Uh, Ray scavenging is fine. Ray's scratching out days. We're all telling a story of Ray's alone. Ray's got to fend for herself. Yeah, I mean, I I like it. It's it's exactly what we complained or I complained that they didn't do for What's-Her-Face in Rogue One. Like, we need to actually see what this character's life is before we start building on it. Why should we care? We need to see the foundation. They do a nice job of that with Ray. They hit all the beats. I think it's kind of an example of how you can hit the beats in the most simple way. And as long as the structure is there, you don't have to actually do anything clever. And a little bit of nice music. Yeah. Nice little John Williams theme. But, you know, she's scratching out those days. I like the childlike, you know, she has the dolls and then she has the. The mask. The helmet. The helmet. Yeah. That she, I mean, I felt my, I found myself going. That's something that a lot of, that's, that's deep in the symbolism of Star Wars is. 
people who put on masks and helmets mm-hmm. are people who are looking for their identity. Huh. That's a theme in in Rebels. The main character is somebody who collects masks and helmets, and he's an orphan who's trying to figure out who he is. Turns out he's he's a Jedi in waiting. Right. And he doesn't need a mask or a helmet, but he has a whole collection of them. When you said that, I immediately pictured Luke in the mask practicing in yeah. Force Awakens in the Millennium Falcon. And like, if he's going to ever become this great Jedi, he's got to put on the same mask that Ray wears, actually. Anakin had one, had one on Tatooine. Who? Oh, uh, in the pod racer stuff? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. There you go. I wonder what Joseph Campbell would say about that. Probably something. He probably did. Probably did. That's probably why it's there. That's probably why it's there. I found myself, especially when she puts on that helmet, kind of having this reaction of, aw. Yeah. She's kind of cute. And it's it's kind of interesting to see, you know, I hadn't watched it in a long time, to, to, to go back to some of these characters and think, oh, they were kids. Yeah. Like, she feels like a kid in a way that she doesn't. Know. She feels like a, much more like a grown woman. And, uh, yeah, now, she's just aged. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, but you don't see how young, she, I mean, you only see how young she looked in retrospect, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly, but it really, it made, it made me feel sort of like protective or something, which made the scene where the scenes later with John Boyega, where it's the like hand holding crap. Yeah. You're dumb for wanting to ever protect Stop me. Stop trying to hold my hand. Um, and then she grabs his hand and yay. Well, what's interesting Thanks, is guys. when you put a girl who's young in a movie like that, you know, if, if this was Luke Skywalker and he's waiting, then me as a film goer, I'm not going to feel that feeling. You're but, not feeling awe. But You're not feeling poor girl. But alone. if it's a girl, you, you, as a guy at least, an older guy, a guy that's older than the actress, you sort of feel yeah. that protective, like, oh, well, yeah, I think I'll that protect it, you, it, Ray. I'll help you. It is interesting. When did that movie come out? Fifteen. It's only been four years. It's only been four years. But I don't know. The difference between... The difference between a 19-year-old and a 25-year-old or is a big difference. Yeah. And the difference between just 30 or early 30s and late 20s and mid-30s is a little bit more father instinct mm-hmm. kicking in, too. Yeah. At least for a 19-year-old girl. Well, I don't know. I think we should just <laughs> talk about it. It's, it's weird, but... Uh, you, what 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 sort of stops for a guy watching a movie as you get a little bit older and you get past you're not the same age as the starlets anymore you stop thinking of them as potential partners like this is the woman that i would marry if i was the guy in the movie and you start yeah you just start thinking in a more fatherly kind of a way all men are fathers i'm a pastor which makes me a father mm-hmm. to my congregation and but one of the, the weird things about being a, a pastor or a civil servant as a father is it, it's more or less natural to be fatherly with certain kinds of people. Like the old lady in your church mm-hmm. who's 92, you are a father to her, but also you have to relate to her as a son. Uh, there's another way to say this than the older you get. The older you get, the more natural it is to be fatherly towards the 19-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And for her to accept you as a fatherly figure. You still have to be that way um, as a pastor if you're 25. But you also have to have some more separation because... You need to be pure. You need to be pure. Mm-hmm. And you need to keep her pure. And you, it, and you're 
peers and peers make for the potential of sexual tension. Right. So you have to work to keep that that distance and it has to be brotherly and fatherly in its way, but not pretend like there aren't other dynamics at play here. Right. Or that there isn't the potential for other dynamics to be at play here. So it's just, I think all I was trying to say earlier is that, you know, I'm almost 36 now, which isn't very old, but it's older than 31, you know. You are, in fact, biologically old enough to be Ray's father in this movie. Yes. I don't know. I mean, all I, all, all I can do is observe the fact that fatherliness feelings were triggered for me from this movie in a way that I don't remember the first time I watched yeah. it, and it was weird. Um, that wasn't weird, but it was just, it was, it certainly did, well, I guess we'll talk about the hand-holding and all that when we get to it, but it certainly did make that stuff feel even dumber. <laughs> Or more like a slap in the face. Well, when when Ray shifts from being a peer to a daughter mm-hmm. in your mind, then which she did for both of us did. apparently. Well, then it feels very natural for you want to sort of discipline your daughter for being a feminist brat. Brat, yeah. Like, and 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 then your heart goes out to John Boyega is just like trying to figure out stolen from his family. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure trying out to figure what out it is, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a good person. And boy, every time he tries, he gets <laughs> he sure does get smacked. Yeah, like, it's just like, no, come on, man, like please. Your instinct the to movie run towards ought to have more pity on him than that. Well, it's like she's getting accosted by some uh, ne'er do wells, and he he's, runs to help her. He's he's got the high, uh, and he has to stop and watch her kick butt for a second, right? And like, the movie's like, ha ha, you dumb idiot! You thought you were going to help the vulnerable little yeah. woman, but actually, she can take care of herself. And then the movie does that again. It does it like three or again. four times right there in the in like a five minute window. And then it has the gall. You you bring in an actual father figure in Han Solo. You do a little bit with the instinct that Jake and Nathan feel of ah, yeah. But then when he comes to rescue her at the end, we're here to rescue you. Oh, yeah? You know, I mean, it's like it's She's still, already rescued herself. Well, I would have been fine. You know, yeah. I mean, it's still got that vibe. Like yeah. never is there a point where your instinct, which they successfully aroused, your instinct to protect this young woman, never is there a point in the movie where that instinct is done anything but denigrated and mocked. Until Chewbacca shows up. Until <laughs> Chewbacca shows up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they do give then... He says it was my idea to rescue you, and she gives him a hug or something like that. And then Finn gets to wield the lightsaber for half a minute while she's knocked out on the ground. Right. Before she marries Zeus. But this, yeah, this is before she- this She's is, been Mary suing the whole- This is after and before she's saved, she's saved him now six or seven times to his- Right. One, like, week, I can just barely do something- Yep. Saving of her. So, well, maybe we'll come back to that when we get to it in our chronology here. But uh, we got Ren interrogating Poe. Yeah. There's that scene. Another new force power. Not that new, really. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty natural extension of... Vader, a sister. You know, he's Vader's able to penetrate Luke's mind. And so, yeah, it's a pretty natural... But the idea of actually being able to visualize what's going on in there instead of sense or feel or get an answer to a question. That's kind of new. Yeah. That's a fun scene. And I like the interrogation, interrogation, 
an interrogation scene later between Poe and Ray. It's jumping ahead, but it did strike me in that scene that it's a dorky actor holding out his hand and wavering it in front of another actress and actress's face. Yeah. And it goes on for like three minutes. <laughs> and mostly thanks to John Williams, <laughs> it really works. And there's dramatic yeah. stakes and tension. But if you think about what they're doing, it's like ridiculous schoolyard ridiculous. crap. Yeah. Like yeah. there's no special effects or anything to kind of dress it up. It's just, just a guy waving his hand and pretending to have wizard powers for a second yep. and a girl pretending to resist his wizard. It's like the kind of acting exercise that you give to actors in like day one of acting class so that they can get over, they can just be embarrassed in front of each other and get over the fact that they're going to be doing embarrassing things. Then we have uh, Ray meets up with BB-8. Hey, yeah. Uh, you're, I just want to point out one little thing, mm-hmm. just a little grace note that was nice in its own way. Your interrogation scene reminded me of the first time Poe and Kylo Ren meet face to face. We have the force freeze of the blaster bolt and then he's brought near and they have that same moment of awkwardly staring at each other in silence. And then Poe's like, so who talks first? Do I talk first? Do you talk first? Yep. It's that little, which is a good, it's a little bit of, it doesn't take much to tell a little bit about the character mm-hmm. of who you're dealing with. Oh, this is the Han Solo character. Yeah. And Oscar Isaac does a nice job of, I mean, he's one of the characters that thoroughly gets deflated and emasculated in Last Jedi, but in this yeah, one, he, he does such a, he does a nice job of being the new he's, Han Solo. He's such an awesome, yeah, I didn't feel this at the time, but I did watching it the second time feel like there is all kinds of Han Solo potential in Oscar Isaacs in, in the performance and what he brought to mm-hmm. just a little bit of material he had to work with. The fact that he's not destined perhaps to be one of the iconic awesome beloved it's, star wars characters is massive failure a shame you know kathleen kennedy allowing ryan johnson to do that right so then we have ray she meets up with bb-8 she does not sell bb-8 to the simon Pegg alien junk trader guy she's sympathetic because she has compassion for droids she has compassion just like somebody else we know yeah exactly and she says my favorite line, which I wrote down, which is, um, I know all about waiting. I'm waiting for my family. They'll be back one day. <laughs> <laughs> which is an example of Aww. like, the Little Mermaid would have a whole song, like in a Disney <laughs> exactly, movie, the whole right. song is dedicated to that. But yep. this is just like, eh, there's, there's the thing. There's the, here's the thing you need to know about the character. too much exposition, but eh, not too much. It's kind of sweet and yeah. she sells it. Yeah. I mean, she's a good actress. Man, he... The casting of this movie, that's the other thing you can really give Abrams credit for. Oscar Isaacs, her, Daisy Ridley. Boyega, they're so darn likable together. Yeah. It really goes it, a long it way. It really is interesting that we're having this conversation this way. Because I think that if we had come out of the theater we wouldn't and done this, we would not be talking this way about these characters. I think we would be saying, who are these characters and why should we care? Right. But they're really, you see it. Going back through, you see all kinds of potential. Mm-hmm. The table really was set. He did do things. He set the table and he made you like the table. And it's something that George Lucas did in the original story. Maybe George Lucas did He may didn't, not but... have made you particularly invested. No, he didn't. But but you, you, you didn't, at the very least, you didn't hate or resent any piece on the table, except for Kylo Ren hated how petulant he was. Yeah, which we can He's argue fine. about that. But- uh, the, this cast is really likable. And th- I mean, it's just things like Daisy Ridley has a really charming smile. Right. Like she has this Cheshire cat grin 
that she flashes. It reminds me of Kara Knightley, who I don't like, and she ruined Pride and Prejudice and Pirates of the Caribbean, stupid. But Kara Knightley has a pretty smile, and so does Daisy Ridley, and that goes a long way. And J.J. Abrams is enough of a workmanlike, good director that he knows you have a director, a character with a smile like that. Let's have her smile. Yeah, you don't all cast the time. Dwayne Johnson in a film and not have him smile, right? Like, yeah. If you're Joel Osteen, the one thing that you don't do is let your teeth go. Okay, that's a bad example. He's well, creepy, you know, but, you don't. But, back in our day, you wouldn't cast Schwarzenegger and not have him show off his muscles. You right. know, people have things that make them yeah. who they are. And if you can figure out what those things are and use those things, then you can do a lot. And so yep. Boyega's good at playing kind of vulnerability and cheerful, like, I got him. I did the thing. I, I, did, I don't know if I'm going to do the thing. I don't know. You know, I'm faking it right now. I'm faking it really badly. I'm a bad liar. He's, but I, good, I, at, I, he's I re- good at bad liar. Right, yeah. <laughs> bad liar who really wants to be a good liar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so have him do that. Cast, I, I can't, I imagine they probably got him and Dizzy Ridley in the r- room, saw how they played off of each other and made sure that they liked each other because it's just kind of palpable that they're friends. You know, the stupid script has them best friends within an hour of meeting each other, which is a Star Wars tradition that goes all the way back to New Hope. Yeah, but we need to be able to buy that in the chemistry of the actors and J.J. Uh, Abrams. I know he's good at this because Lost did a good job on it. And that Star Trek movie, the genius yep. of that first Star Trek movie, is that he put together just a, a really likable, really cast. nice cast for his Star Wars audition. Yeah, he didn't know how to do much of anything with them, judging by those Star Trek sequels. Uh, Finn and Poe escape, and they're best friends. All of a sudden, yeah, they're again. You know, I, I was thinking, I couldn't think of a really great example, but it's, there's so many movies where, well, Solo is actually not a bad example. The characters are doing an escapade and we're immediately expected to just accept that they're charming and this banter is fun. And the movie's like, you're having fun, aren't you? And right. I'm like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm really not actually having that much fun. Well, see, part of how it works, even with the chemistry of the actors, is Poe Dameron is the kind of, feels like the kind of guy who is like a best friend, big brother, father figure to just anybody. Everybody, yeah, exactly. He's everybody's big brother, best friend. He's he's going to draw you in. He's like the recruiting tool of the resistance. Like, you know, not only is he the ace pilot, he's the guy that you go and, you know, make the guy who mentors the 10 other junior, goes and recruits other pilots and is like, you want to be part of the resistance. Let's go, buddy. Yeah, he's Tom Cruise in Top Gun. He's, yeah. he's, he's the one that's going to give Boyega his jacket and say like, you earned it, kid, and Boyega yeah. is going to feel really special yeah, about and, having this crummy well, jacket. In, in, John, in John Boyega's character is the character who's just so desperate for yeah. friendship in a likable sort of way that, like, of course it's going to work. They do a really nice job establishing that in the fastest brushstrokes possible, in ridiculous yeah. brushstrokes that, you know, nobody becomes friends that fast with somebody that they're de- devastated over their loss, you know, within a half an hour of meeting them. But it really works because of the chemistry of the actors. And I don't know. I just uh, like Captain Marvel actually is a really good example of a movie where Brie Larson's not likable and she's got all this banter and all this stuff that's not that much less or more sophisticated than what these people have to do. But we're expected to just be charmed by it. Not so charming. It's not so charming. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just casting or if Abrams has just knows the secret of how to make those chemicals ignite on screen. But it is something that I think you could give him credit for that. Either way, give him credit for it. Yeah, he gets it. He got the result. 
It's like the difference between a rom-com where you can tell that there's chemistry between the leads and one where they might both be great actors. They might both really know how to play romantic scenes, but they just didn't like each other that much in real life. And it just some, somehow bleeds through, you know? Well, you have the same vibe. Uh, Marvel's been smart about this exact Very kind smart. of thing, right? Yeah. Like Mark Ruffalo and Chris Hemsworth develop an <coughs> off-screen chemistry while they're doing press tours. Right. And Taika Waititi's like, let's lean into let's that. Let's do that on film. Yep. Donnie Jr. T- assumes a fatherly role with Tom Holland. Let's get that. Let's get that on film. Falcon and the Winter Soldier have this. They're good at doing bro reaction shots together. And and they have a, a real press tour relationship where part of the press tour relationship is joining up and picking on Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. Let's just make that. Their shtick. There's a TV, and let's make that their TV and then show. Let's make a whole TV show about yeah. that shtick. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like you know, that's there's a lot. If you can't have you know, character actors, are harder and harder to come by. It seems like, mm. but pretty charismatic people who can develop chemistry with other people, or you know, where you can find natural chemistry. Like that's something that smart directors find, put together, lean into, and you see on the press tour stuff you know these characters they have these kinds of sit the, the these actors they have the same relate john boyega and oscar isaacs have a bromance right that's a real life bromance and what is it about that that makes it so much more compelling to watch that on the screen than than two really good actors playing all the same lines i have no idea it's kind of it's pixie dust it's just pixie dust yeah but abrams is really smart in putting those things together and making them well, and he may even just kind of create the environment like a good coach does. Right. Like a good coach in training camp, what he does, the reason you have training camp is it's like boot camp. Like boot camp in the military, everybody goes and gets on the same page and they go through some hard experiences together and they're brothers by the time it's done. Training camp's the same kind of thing. You put everybody under pressure and then you create these bonding experiences for them through the trials of the work in the day and then also the team meals and then also the, you know, team fun events or Mm -hmm. whatever later you create these or just the structured free time where people are allowed to have space to create and develop these relationships. I think half of, especially if you have a, a movie like Star Wars, a lot of what a good director might have to do is like, you have tons of, you know, pre screening, you know, read throughs and yeah, in the room with the whiteboard and talking and getting everybody excited and getting everybody on board and making everybody count the cost of the pressure of in in coaching these young actors on now listen your life's about to change your completely. life is going to change forever and people some people are going to hate you for the rest of your life and it doesn't matter how good you are and some people are going to love you for the rest of your life and it doesn't matter how bad you are mm-hmm. you know you just are going to have to here so here are th- five lessons about having thick skin and here are five you know and we're now we're going to bring in Mark Hamill and he's going to talk to you about what his life was like yeah, yeah, yeah. and how Star Wars made his life and ruined his life mm-hmm. and Carrie Fisher is going to talk about you know or Harrison Ford's going to come in and talk about you know whatever yeah i think a good director is like a coach or like a you know a father figure obviously you hear a lot of stories about like Stanley Kubrick you know the more genius kind of cold directors You'll hear actors talk about how devastating it was to be done with the movie because this person who just felt like their dad 
suddenly either in the worst situation doesn't doesn't care for them about them anymore <laughs> now that they've got what they wanted <laughs> or just like we move on now i've got to get a new father figure with new whoever family, yeah. with whoever the next person is and so you make these intense connections and then it is why it's also why so many hollywood affairs start on set yeah it's why mama don't let your daughter grow up to be an actress be an actress yeah um because yeah the emotional turmoil the emotional turnover that you have to go through in that business is just like i don't know it's yep. it's pretty grotesque i say as somebody who likes movies yeah so is unprepared to accept the con logical consequences of the words just spoken yep exactly i guess it's okay but I don't know. It takes a special sort of person. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> a sinner. Loophole. Um, <laughs> uh, so Finn meets Ray. They become fast friends. Their chemistry is great. Exact same thing between the two of them. Uh, we do have those scenes. I don't know if there's anything else we want to say about the annoying feminism. I think we already kind of uh, yeah. got there ahead of ourselves. It's She's a great pilot. She's a mechanic. She can do it all. Yeah. Now we all have to pretend like we already knew what the term Mary Sue was, even though none of us had actually heard the term before this movie um, well i'm just sort of sitting out here in the middle of nowhere with this with and all this broken wreckage and uh oh look i can fly the millennium falcon and i understand it better than han solo yeah i don't like that you know what what will if we need it if anybody feels like we need it we'll get a little tv show where we have the pod racing that happens on Jakku where we learn all the ways that Ray yeah. learned how to be a great at everything, great pilot, great mechanic and everything else. Well, as of this recording, we just did our top seven things we liked about Narnia on the bookening. And my last one was the discipline and what I meant by that. And we talked a lot about this a ton in our Narnia series on the bookening was Lewis just has all these moments where the characters mess up where the children act like children where they get bratty or petulant or they make the wrong decision or they don't trust Aslan. somebody tells them like hey that was dumb you should clean your sword peter you should yeah you should guys should have followed Aslan. and not only is that good for kids to learn like i need discipline and it's good when people discipline me it's also relatable like it's yeah. what happens in real life even if you have bad parents you probably still have teachers or a coach or Somebody who disciplines you. And if you don't, you have a God that disciplines you. So the fact that Ray's not allowed to make mistakes in this movie. And that even her mistakes turn out for good. Yeah. She's Harry Potter. Yeah. And in both cases, I think it makes, it flatters the audience. It says you, as the person putting yourself yep. in the shoes of this protagonist, are someone who is basically right about everything. Yep. And just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Which is not actually a good lesson. It's also not a relatable lesson. What I want to say, I think most of our listeners know it's unchristian, it's unbiblical, but it's also bad storytelling is the point I want to make because we actually relate to flawed human beings who are like us and we want to see stories about flawed. So every time Ray does something perfectly, I guess the idea is that a little girl can say, oh, well, it wouldn't be great if I could impress Han Solo. But actually the real Han Solos in, that li in, in real life aren't that easy to impress. Yep. And what, what feels nice is if you earn Han Solo's trust and his love by the end of the movie mm. not if you get and it, it in, feels earned and it feels earned that's what's really moving in a story the fact that she just gets it because she was already always great and she was just waiting for the han solos of the world to notice how great well, she now is. nathan that's how it reads without having seen the rise of skywalker 
but it may read completely different after the rise of Skywalker. It may be that Han is looking at his niece or his daughter or the long lost somebody that we all knew was out there somewhere. And it's possible. It doesn't stop what sucks about this movie as an artifact (laughs) taken in and of itself. (laughs) All right. Fair point. May turn out that Leia and Luke are brothers and sisters and all their weird kissing and sexual (laughs) tension is really creepy. (laughs) Let's actually not let that affect the artifact that is a new hope. Okay. Well, so the next scene is uh, Kylo Ren. Finn has escaped and Kylo Ren has a temper tantrum. And yeah. we start to realize that he's a petulant brat who's in over his head. And yep. we're going to realize that more as the movie goes on. But let's talk about Kylo Ren. Do you like Kylo Ren? Yes. I think, was it off-putting to have, the, to have fake Vader be fake Vader? Yeah, it kind of was off-putting for fake Vader to be actual fake Vader. But in the way that a real movie that's not just paying uh, lip service to fan service, if that's a phrase that I can use, uh, they took a risk with something, and that's refreshing. Yeah, they decided that we can't live up to Vader, so let's have our fake Vader be a fake Vader who knows he can't live up to Vader and is trying desperately to and really can't and is haunted by the fact that he can't live up to Vader. Right. And is a petulant little brat trying to figure out who he is just as much as our Mary Sue is. Mm -hmm. And he's actually allowed to fail in a relatable human way, which I think makes him a much more interesting character. I wish Ray was the good side equivalent of what he is actually, and that they're both. That's Finn for us. That's Finn. But I think Ray would be a more compelling protagonist if she was allowed to do some of that, at least like let's have two people the force has receded into a legend. Luke's a legend. Now let's just have these two bumbling people that so- figure out that they can channel this power and what are they going to do with it? But I really thought it was Kylo Ren's a villain we haven't seen before in Star Wars. He's an interesting new kind of villain. And he's a relatably dangerous villain of the type that I don't think we see in movies a lot. But real life villains are often villainous precisely because of their incompetence. You combine deep malice with deep incompetence. You have and, someone that's and more great power and great power, <laughs> right? You have somebody that's arguably more dangerous than you know a malevolent supervillain, uh, James Bond villain, Hannibal Lecter type character who's just omnicompetent. Like that villain is scary, and there's a reason Hollywood keeps going back to that all powerful satanic uh, villain mold. But in real life, as often, and that's the reason why the rise of Skywalker is going back there. Yeah, exactly, and and I, we're we're happy about that, and we've talked about that. But the fact is, in real life, it's not the teacher who's knows everything and is just out to give you a bad grade because he's malicious. It's the teacher who's incompetent, who hasn't studied the material, who's just pretending to be an authority figure. That's the one that you remember hating from high school. If you think about... Well, the teacher, easily, the teacher that I dislike the most, if there's ever a teacher I've despised, it is my senior year high school AP lit teacher who simply put did not she just did not belong teaching literature period right this teacher she she literally did not know what a syllable was (laughs) and she literally could not count the number of syllables in the word banana right and this is my go-to this whole class the whole year was like this Mm -hmm. but this is not an exaggeration she literally 
was trying to teach us about iambic pentameter, which we all understood because we'd had some pretty great English teachers before that, who we hated because they were good and required us to do work. Mm -hmm. But she was trying to teach iambic pentameter and she didn't understand feet and she didn't even understand syllables. And she literally stood in front of our class and argued with us about the number of syllables in the word banana. Banana, three syllables. Yes, and she kept clapping and saying, banana. <laughs> See, it's about the rhythm. Banana, no. Banana, <laughs> three. <laughs> <laughs> you can do a different rhythm. <laughs> Early on, I got this, I got like a C or a D on one of my first papers. Mm -hmm. And she had marked it up with all these grammatical errors that weren't actually grammatical errors. And so I, I was just like, I was really, this is early in the year, and I was just like, what am I gonna do? So I diagram these sentences to show her. She didn't know what a sentence diagram was. And so then I go to the department chair, which we had, and, and I'm just like, here's the paper, here's the, uh, I wrote up sentence diagrams to prove, but you don't need to see those. She, she gave me a D or something because she doesn't understand the difference between a complex compound sentence and a run-on sentence, you know? <laughs> like, and so he went and he got my grade changed to an A. And then I literally went to writing, like that, I just treated the class as a joke. Mm -hmm. Like I went to writing the most simple, the, the ball is blue, mm -hmm. the cat is brown. I will not express a, a, a single, you know, complicated thought. Right. And what I'm writing for this woman who doesn't know what a syllable is while she's teaching my AP literature class. Right. Like, what an insult to all of us. Mm -hmm. So terrible. Well, I think we've all been oppressed by teachers like that, by bosses like that. But we've all had that I don't know experience. why I told that story. Was it, did I just tell that story because it was interesting? That's <laughs> that's Kylo Ren, Jake. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, I think there is something in, in, in that because I think, like, I've, 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 I've read before that professional poker players will not play poker against amateur poker because they players. can't read them because they can't read them they they have no idea what they're going to do because it's an amateur who might just accidentally bilk Give you for millions of dollars vibe, because yeah. because they don't know how to play poker um and there's all kinds well, of parallels like that in real life and that's kylo ren he's dangerous because there's no predicting him major league baseball scientifically your brain cannot react to a a, a baseball you're not a a, a batter is not reacting to the pitch. He's not seeing the pitch and reading the pitch. What he's doing, what his brain is doing is interpreting a thousand cues that are all subtext of how this pitcher is pitching. And the pitcher's job is deception, plain and simple deception. It is to mask every cue that could possibly signal what the pitch is and where it's going to mm -hmm. be as effectively as possible. And yes, there are erratic pitchers that have no idea what they're doing. Right. That can be successful and have a chance of striking out anybody if they can just throw the ball hard enough and be like the idiot poker player. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Potentially, but it is, it's, it's that, it's that's, that that's same what principle. They get at. It's, it's like Darth Vader, you always know where you are at with Darth Vader and probably you're screwed. Same thing with Palpatine, but those guys are predictable and they're evil. Kylo Ren is a complete wild card and you never know what he's going to do. And I think that that's just a really fun idea for a villain. Yeah.
I don't know. You also think about like the great villains of history. You you do have some megalomaniacal masterminds, like you know we've been reading War and Peace, Napoleon. Napoleon yeah. You've you got those guys, but then you've got like Judas sold out his savior, the savior of mankind, for thirty pieces of silver, which wasn't a lot of money. Like the people that do the most damage are not always. They don't realize that they're there to be the villain until suddenly they make the last villainous decision. Right. Or or Saul in the one of the great tragic villain stories in the Bible. He's yeah. complicated. And when he's most dangerous to David is when he's just like this guy that's going to randomly throw a spear, yeah. which is very Kylo Ren. So that's Kylo Ren. Then we meet Han Solo again. Yep. How do you f- feel about Han Solo in this movie? Um, I feel like Harrison Ford's there and bringing it. He famously hated this role. I mean, he's always hated Han Solo. He never liked the dialogue. He never liked doing it. He was always grateful to George Lucas for helping make his career, but he's always personally been more of an Indiana Jones man than a Han Solo man. I I think that he was happy to play the role of a grumpy old man who hated being there. Right. And got finally got to die. And really liked to use Chewie's blaster that apparently we all really care about now. <laughs> Give him, give him his thing. Yeah, JJ's allowed to do that. Yeah, he that was his nerd thing. Gonna, like, if you're gonna, obviously, JJ Abrams always thought that Chewie's dumb crossbow thing was cool, <laughs> so he wanted somebody else to use it. I guess I don't know. Yeah, it's just, you know that's his that's his prerogative. Yeah, that's if you were gonna do, there would be something like that that we would throw into a a Star Wars movie that we will. Mm-hmm. Throw into a Star Wars movie when the Vill gets discovered and yep. they tap us. Dave to, Filoni, to, you know, listens to our podcast. It's like, man, these guys, they really get it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, Jake and Nathan, come be give us my right hand guys and give us the next trilogy. Yep. We, w- we will definitely do something like that. Yeah. And it'll be great. I don't know. I kind of felt like sad that Han Solo was still a cynical reprobate, like. I don't know. It's that weird catch 22 where everything that you love about the character is something that the character kind of needs to grow out of and that you kind of expect he would grow out of at the end of Return of the Jedi. But it's just kind of depressing to see him still be on the outs with Leia and what a terrible life. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, cool. Great. It sure is nice to know that Return of the Jedi wasn't actually a happy, happily ever after for our two lovebirds and Han's just the same cynical swindler doing deals with guys that are well beneath him and i didn't know how to feel i mean i didn't like it but i don't know what else you do if you're going to bring han solo back it's part of the conundrum of trying to come up with something that's going to satisfy you know what it made me really appreciate robert downey jr and what's not to appreciate by him but he did such a nice job in the marvel movies Everything that we like about Tony Stark is his insouciance, his wise acre nature, you know, his kind of immaturity is, is in the fact that he doesn't, he's flippant about being a superhero. That's, that is what makes Tony Stark, Tony Stark. And yet in those movies, he charts a real course of giving gravity and dignity and making that character into a father figure. And it really works. And you really believe it, even though Tony Stark never loses his Tony Starkhood. And it's just so nice how they do that. It's one of, you know, whatever you want to say about Captain Marvel and Captain America and everything that they did wrong in the Marvel series, Tony Stark is a triumph of that series. Well, I think that what what people are afraid, the question people are afraid to ask 
in those types of situations is I think what people are just generally afraid of in general when it comes to righteousness or mm-hmm. goodness is that, or godliness or holiness, is that becoming more godly means losing what's fun or interesting or unique about which isn't true about you, which isn't true. There's there's a, a redeemed Han Solo that's still Han Solo. And is more likably iconoclastically Han Solo than any Han Solo ever before. Ever before. But also fatherly and wise and dignified. This has been one of the great lessons of my life and one of the joys of my life because I think I always thought that becoming mature meant becoming boring. And it's one of the things that kept me from being mature in my early, you know, as a teenager and into my 20s was just like, well, I don't want to be dumb and boring. So obviously. Only immature people think that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) In in Hollywood's nothing if not immature. It's why Hollywood thinks that, oh man, mature sexuality sounds boring. Why would you be married to the same one person for your whole life? Yep. And you know what? When you mature past that immaturity, uh, you understand what's better. Yeah. And uh, Jake just said a lot, folks. There's there's a sub- subtext. <laughs> all kinds of subtext. Uh, <laughs> like all the stuff that Hollywood says you like about not being mature is actually stuff you only get really well by... The best of it's reserved for the mature. Yeah, it's weird. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. in his own silly Marvel movie Hollywood way kind of got at that. Like by the end of those movies, Tony Stark's a better man, a more interesting man, and he's still Tony Stark. And Who would you rather hang out with? The Tony Stark at the beginning of the MCU or the Tony Stark at the end of the MCU? Well, which one would have the give you the time of day? Exactly, yeah. Which one would you be able to hang out with? Yeah. Wh- which one would anybody, I mean... Might be fun to watch a movie about the first Tom Tony Stark, but you wouldn't like him if you had to work for him. Nope. Marvel You'd movies be like been... Pepper. Why are you still here? Because you pay me really well. That's why I'm still here. Yep. Or like all the people that uh, worked for Jake Gyllenhaal that were just like, no, we we didn't like him. Um, yeah. Which was a smart conceit. Because yeah. who would? Yeah, exactly. And so it's too bad that they didn't have something more up their sleeves besides... Han Solo was just stuck in Arrested Development, and that's what makes him the same lovable rogue. Well, you know, he tried to get beyond it, but then his son went to the dark. He had too much Vader in him. Yeah, but I just, I think any sequel needs to start with the proposition, we are not going to undo too much of what, particularly with characters. I can understand like, oh no, the bad guy came back, or oh no, there's more ghosts for the Ghostbusters. Like, obviously, in order for the sequel to exist, you got to give them that. Yep. But if somebody fell in love with somebody or somebody realized that they needed to be a better father or if somebody had a breakthrough, there's nothing I hate more than when we artificially make that breakthrough just go away yep. so that we can, oh, now Michael Douglas isn't in love with the romancing the stone lady anymore. So they have to fall in love again and romancing the stone too, whatever that was. Sigourney Weaver is going to marry a cello player instead of bill murray because reasons right so now bill murray can try and charm her all over again yay instead Um, of i don't know just be a good husband and dad bill murray could do that that would be 
a really interesting character for Bill Murray to play. Yeah, and the challenge for the screenwriter then is a really interesting creative challenge, which is Bill Murray still needs to be funny. He still needs to stand at an odd angle to the material and not take it seriously. Bill Murray still needs to be everything that we want about Bill Murray, and he has to be a dad. And how do you do that? Well, I don't know, but that's an interesting question to try and answer. A lot less interesting than, well, Bill Murray's just still... I guess what the the screenwriters would say was, come on, you believed that you liked Han Solo when he was a rogue, and now you're going to... Like, we're just telling you that actually rogues don't change. And if you look at real life, that's actually, you know, like Han and Leo actually wouldn't work. Who in your life that you know that's a Han and Leia have actually worked? That's what they would say to that, I guess. Some truth to that. Yeah. But also, I don't go to movies for... The bad, the sad stories, the bad stories. Well, I mean, I don't want to be told that Han and Leia wouldn't work. I understand that real life romance is fraught with all kinds of perils, but... The whole point of a fairy tale, which is what Star Wars is, is that in this story... It does. It does. This is the one in a million thing. Yep. That's That's the the reason we're telling this story. Right. It's because it's different from the other stories. Right. Why are we telling the story of Frodo? Because he was the one. We don't tell the story about the hobbit that gets crushed by a a goblin. (laughs) (laughs) We don't tell the story about the hobbit that... The hobbit? The hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) The hobbit that is uh, a slave under Wormtongue. Yeah, I mean, there's probably some dork that left the Shire and got eaten by that tree, you know, wasn't saved by Tom Bombadil. Nobody writes a story about him. <laughs> Why? Because he died. He was an idiot <laughs> that got eaten by a tree. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Speaking of idiots that get eaten by things, we have that. Oh, man, I don't like that scene. It's my least favorite scene, probably. Han Solo's what? shipping. I'm getting back to Star Oh, Wars right, now. right. The Rathtars. The Rathtars, yeah. Yeah, that whole thing. It's just bad CGI. Kanja Club. And I just don't like it. It's, a, it's not a good action scene. The geography is not real clear. It's just people running down corridors. And yeah. who knows where the monster is going to come from or what the strategy is. It's, it's yeah. really lame. And that monster is so lame and like just bad CGI. Like none of the... You compare that to the monster underneath Jabba's palace and all the wonderful detail of its trainer being sad and all that. Like, that's the kind yeah. of... George Lucas would not have... He would have... He would have given that monster some more dignity. So much more personality and... But the really fun thing is that when Mary Sue, Mary Sue's John Boyega's uh, saving, you know, because she, like, knows which fuse to pull to close the door, which button to push to close the door with just this control panel of lighty buttons or whatever, mm-hmm. she runs and he starts to excitedly tell her what happened. And she says, that was lucky. Yeah. And it's cute. It, was, it's, it is fun to condescend to men because <laughs> <laughs> they're idiots. Well, no, that one wasn't that bad. That was less condescension and more just humility. And also let's get on with it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I, I wasn't actually, I don't think I was paying attention during that scene. I don't actually remember that, but. I'm, I'll take your word for it. He's like, it had me, and it was, and then the door closed, and she's like, that was lucky. There you go. That's nice. I'll, I'll give it to him. Okay, then we meet Snoke, iconic supervillain, Palpatine replacement, Snoke. Yeah. Yep. I don't know what they're, well, that's the problem, is that there's nothing to say about Snoke. Like, why not give him something fun? Palpatine's such a, you just need one scene with Palpatine, and- you're like, oh, this guy just loves being evil and he's kind of lovable. But Snoke's just so, he's just so subdued and bureaucratic 
for a Star Wars villain. He's just, I mean, I know we can talk about what Ryan Johnson did with him, but he's never really impressed me. I don't know. You like, you like Snoke? I mean, I, I think he could have been interesting, but Ryan Johnson sure didn't like him. Nope. <laughs> he did not. I, I want to like him just because Ryan Johnson hated him so much. Like, I want to find a reason to like, that's what I'm sitting here doing is like, I want to find a reason to like Snoke because Ryan Johnson. The problem is anything that I might like about Snoke actually comes from the Ryan Johnson. The way he's kind of disdainful and playing with what's his face, Kylo Ren is kind of fun and he's a little bit more. He dresses in gold and. And he's got a heck of a red, scary throne room. I don't think I like, I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree with Ryan Johnson as much as it pains me. I don't like Snoke that much. Well. Here, here's what I like about Snoke. If your decision is that we're going to have fake Darth Vader, mm-hmm. be actual fake Darth Vader, and he's going to be fakey, fake mm-hmm. Darth Vader, we need, even if your end game was always to bring Palpatine back, yeah, we need a credible threat or a potentially credible threat still looming large one way or another over this movie and the next movie. Somebody that's bigger, somebody that's Leia can not very credibly say it was Snoke. Mm. He fills that role. Not very interestingly, but he fills it. I mean, it's really just a, what what do they call it? A punt. I mean, it's just like a, we're not going to do the work of establishing this guy where he's, he's an open question. It's not about him. Yeah. Which is fine, I guess, but which is what happened in the, you know, if you want to, Think about it this way. Darth Vader actually wasn't all that. No, he's, had, just, he's just kind of a thug in that first He was one. a thug. Not everybody took him seriously. And the Emperor was this thing that was off screen, basically. Right. It's not that different from what A New Hope did. No, but it does It does have a nice mystery boss. You know, what happened to his fate? All these questions that Ryan Johnson told us didn't matter. But they were interesting questions. Like, what's who is Snoke? How, what's his relationship to Palpatine and the Sith? What's his real size? What's his real size? Yeah, like, it's a way of asking a lot of questions and giving nerds something to talk about until Last Jedi. Yep. And then Ryan Johnson was like, you were dumb to talk about that, nerds. There's nothing to talk about. No, yeah, it's just You have nothing to talk about between now and the next film. Gotcha. Except for how they're going to fix everything I broke. Yep. (sighs) All right. Ray and Han and our heroes arrive at Maz Kanata's planet. Yeah. Han says, like, I feel fatherly feelings towards you, and would you consider... Joining my crew. Joining my crew, even though he's known her for an hour. Yeah. Yeah, which again is set up to be interpreted either as, wow, I've never met anybody who has bonded so closely with my baby, the Millennium Falcon, Mm -hmm. and is such a blank slate and could use real help and guidance, and maybe I can get right what I got wrong with the rest of my life here or this is the girl the one this is my daughter this is my niece this is my you know yeah i mean this is the granddaughter of the man that i named my son after and i will take her under my wing and look askance at her as she sort of gets drawn by the force into my path and into this story finally and what's happening and how's it all going to unfold and this, of course, is going to lead to me seeing Leia again, and Luke is not far behind, and of course, things are in motion now that have been in motion since... That's all possible. I don't know. I think a good 
good shell game is one where the shell that doesn't have the prize under it looks as good as the shell that does you know like if you're gonna fake out out the audience it's nice if the scene plays as legitimate emotional well that's why all those scenes were there of she gets the falcon she gets this she gets that she rips the thing out i bypass the such a majigger right yeah they just you know what all they really needed to do is be like it's gonna take a week to get to maz Kanata's place one week later now they've had some time together and I don't even have to see it, but just tell me that it happened so I can buy that there's some kind of budding relationship between these people. Yeah. But it basically skates by on the chemistry and heck, New Hope had the same problem with Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan Luke. And Luke so the most fundamental relationship in all of Star Wars. So yeah, he goes back and sees the fried bodies of Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. Eh, I guess there's nothing for me now, here now. Time to go off to the galaxy. Ben, right. no! And then a moment after that, I got him. I got him. (laughs) (laughs) Great kid. Don't get cocky. Uh, So Star Wars has never been the most emotionally nuanced (laughs) universe. But, you know, kids movies. You know, here's one thing I will say, though. George Lucas allows enough time to pass emotionally that you don't really notice it. Maybe it's because you see the movie when you're four years old. But I'd like to think that even an adult watching A New Hope for the first time wouldn't necessarily clock how short Luke and Obi-Wan's time was together because the movie doesn't draw attention to it. J.J. Abrams is much more blatant. Maybe he's not much more blatant, but that'll be my half-hearted defense of (laughs) (laughs) the silliness of A New Hope. They go to Maz Kanata's place. place. The new Maz Eisley. Yep. What did you think about that? Fine. It's okay. Really struck me that George Lucas would have spent like four minutes just showing creatures doing creature things and either jj abrams isn't interested in that or maybe modern movies just don't have time for that kind of this movie had a lot to get done it did it did but and this movie wanted to do more force lore than a new hope and knew that you wanted more force lore than a new hope so it could have done that uh cantina setup i mean Maybe this is the conversation they have. Well, we can do the cantinas set up and make it, you know, just, and everybody be like, oh, there's the cantina riff Mm -hmm. that Lucas would have done, or we can have a really cool force vision. Yeah, I guess that's true, but I don't know. Moss Eisley is so iconic and they're obviously doing their version of it. And it's this, this thing is so uninspiring. I don't remember anything specifically except for the great big fat alien that has the... The sexy chick... uh, Laying on top of him. Yeah, that was... uh, Yay. Yay! And then Maz is kind of a zero, too. Like, you you think about Yoda and all the... Everything that goes into Yoda's introduction, like he's going to pretend to be a little dork and then he's going to reveal himself. And Maz it feels like they really dropped the ball on this character in terms of actually... Give, making a character that's anything but an exposition. I mean, here's an idea. Fold it into He's the- He's pl- got a boy, Chewbacca's her boyfriend. Yeah, there's a little bit of color. She feels a little bit like that professor that we've She's all got, had that's a little she bit, adjust, she adjusts you know, colorful. Her, her goggles. But goggles and Chewbacca- Crawls up on the table. Do not a character make, I think. I think she's all right. I don't, I don't like her. I think she, I think they should just should have given her, you know, show don't tell, give her, give her a little scene to- she yells across the bar, Hod Solo, you old son of a gun. And everybody, that's about the most we get to say, yeah, she's kind of a lusty bar 
maid kind of a lady or something like that. Where's but, my boyfriend? But have some creature threaten the them eyes. and then have her blasted. I don't know what you do. Just give us some 30 second thing that just tells us this. This is who Maz Kanata is and this is why we should care. I mean, maybe she's just not supposed to be that important, but it kind of feels like she's this movie's Yoda or something like that. And if you're going to be this movie's Yoda, then you got to be better than that. Maybe I'm just holding her to too high a standard here. And she's not this movie's Yoda. She's just this movie's exposition dumper. Yoda is not in... She's much more this movie's Lando than she is this movie's Yoda. Yeah, but Lando's like, Han, you son of a gun. I'm a charming bisexual guy. Yes, well, that's sir. Because, that's because all of Act 2 is Lando. Right. Of Empire. And this brief stop of Act 2 is... Maz Kanata. I still think, Jake, if you gave us five minutes, we could come up with a better introduction for Maz Kanata that both made the bar a more iconic place and made her a more iconic, cool character and established the relationship between her and Han Solo and stuff. But whatever. It's fine. She gives exposition. Finn decides to run off. He's going to go on a ship with some people. Did you buy that whole element of the story because i had completely forgotten about it and it felt kind of left field this time finn's gonna run off yeah yeah i mean if you think of it this way finn's trying to escape from the first order he knows what the first order is capable of he's afraid he's trying to do a good thing every time he tries to do a good thing goes bad he's been nearly killed by wrath tars or whatever and he doesn't know anything about the force he doesn't know anything about Whatever. But we haven't really seen him. Yeah, he was a bit of a coward when he didn't want to massacre a village at the beginning. But since then, he's been a pretty buoyant, fun-loving kind of guy that's going to run forward when he sees Ray getting accosted. The fact that he's even troubled by all this kind of came out of left field for me. Maybe I was just not paying attention. No, I mean, he didn't want to go back to Jakku. He was freaked out when Poe was like, we're going back to Jakku. Then he had an instant kick kick in and he was he had a little bit of buzz and then he says yeah i'm with the first or the resistance total mr resistance senior resistance that's my name i'm the resistance guy resistance yeah and then he explains it later he's like i didn't know what to say i'm a stormtrooper i was ashamed of who i was what i've done and there you were being all pretty and stuff and then they came for us and you were a pilot and you could get me off the thing but i am not He's seen Starkiller base. That's true. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense. I just, in, in all of the Joseph Campbell-inspired stuff, I, I looked it up. This is called Reject the Call. That's what Joseph right. Campbell had it as. That's, that's the point in the hero's journey where the hero rejects the call. And I just always think that's the most boring part of any movie. And I don't, I, I guess they have to do it. I don't mind that they do it, but I'm just always bored by it. It's kind of the same to me as a bad rom-com where something artificial makes the characters not like each other just so that they can, the guy can run to the airport in the third act and before she gets yeah. on the plane. You have to work pretty hard to not make it feel sweaty that they're going to, these people that obviously are destined for each other are going to be separated for the, so we can get act two and then into act three. I'm just always bored with the character's having a long conversation about how one of them's not going to be a hero just so he can turn around and be a hero. Be a hero. It's one of those things. There's certain cliches that I just find inherently boring. Well, what you do then is you take that guy and 
when he finally decides to be a hero, you you say being a hero is stupid and yeah, exactly. You know, actually, you should not sacrifice yourself. You or, shouldn't. You shouldn't have done it. You probably should have gotten on that stupid ship and gotten as far away as you could. Yeah, being idiot. a hero isn't what saves us. Random abstract concepts of love are what save us. I don't know. Maybe it's a necessary scene. It's also a boring scene. It's kind of like the nagging wife. I hate the nagging wife in sports movies, the coach's wife or the police officer's wife who the police officer is going to bring down, crack this one case, but he has the wife that is just mad at him. Two cliches that I am just like, oh, can't we just have a joke to get past this? You know, can't we just have Robert Downey Jr. come in and make a quip and not do this scene Mm -hmm. that we've seen a million times? Not really criticizing it so much as observing my boredom with it. Then we find out about Starkiller Base. Pretty scary. Uh, lamest part of the movie. Yeah. I literally fell asleep. In this most recent viewing? Yeah. But Jake, it's big. It blows up three planets instead of one. I'm going to be honest. I was falling asleep at uh, Maz Kanata's place. I forced my eyes to stay open for the Force Vision. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you want to say anything about the Force Vision? We kind of skipped over that. These are your first steps. Obi-Wan Kenobi voice. As done by, Ray. what's his uh, face? Both. Right? As done bo- by both Ian uh, McGregor, Ian McGregor and, and Sir, what's his face? Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness. Yeah, Ray is Alec Guinness, and these are your first steps. Is Ian McGregor? Ian McGregor. Yeah. <laughs> she is drawn to Anakin's lightsaber. She has vision. Part of the vision is being in the tunnel where Luke faced Vader. I just in thinking about lightsaber lore. I was pretty convinced during that scene for the first time that actually she she's Luke's daughter. She's a Skywalker? Not just any, she's Luke's. Luke ditched her before he took off. Or Luke's mom, or not Luke's mom, her mom always had her, whatever. I don't know. I'm not, I didn't come out of the rest of the movie being convinced that that was true just in that moment. You were maybe at least convinced that that's what J.J. was kind of playing with when he when he did it, when he made Force Awakens? I'm going to be honest. I'm going to say that J.J. wasn't convinced of any of the directions that he needed to go in. Nope. But I am also convinced that he wanted to leave it open to the possibility that she is Luke's, mm-hmm. that she's Obi-Wan's, and that she is Leia's. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he did a good job of leaving it open to all three possibilities. Yep. And knew that people would have a fun time puzzling over over it. Which is um, the fun of, as, as much as J.J. Abrams has famously lame answers to these questions, he doesn't know how to ask a good question. Yeah. He asks a good question. And I, I mean, it was Anakin's lightsaber. Obi-Wan was the caretaker of it and handed it to Luke. Somehow it's at Maz Kanata's palace. But that's a story for another day. Nice, uh, graceful. It calls to, yes, yeah, it was a, it's calling to Ray. Mm-hmm. It's calling to her because she's a Skywalker, because she's supposed to be the caretaker who delivers it to the Skywalker at the right time. Mm-hmm. Or it's nothing, and who knows, and who cares, because whatever. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. Probably it needs to be destroyed. December 20th, yeah. Well, yeah. And then put back together. Yeah. I mean, they just straight up put it back together. Wait, who destroyed it? Ray and... Kylo Ren did in The Last Jedi. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, it's been so long since I've seen that stupid thing. They're like force pulling it and it explodes. That's right. And she picks up the pieces and the kyber crystal from inside of it. 
and then now it's just back like in the that, trailers. It's not just, something that <laughs> you should be able to just do with a lightsaber. Even all the lore and all the things we know, you feel like you should just be able to put it back together like that. You should like burn the kyber crystal out or something if you're gonna. You can take it apart and take the kyber crystal out, and you can make something else with it. And kyber crystals are attracted to people. You have to find the right crystal for you. The one that calls to you. The crystal that calls to you. All of that you can watch in episodes of Clone Wars. Yep. Uh, oh, and... and ha! I will, got it in again. Will, will we ever? Yeah, take that, <laughs> listeners. Um, so Star Caliber Base blows up stuff. Kylo Ren kidnaps Rey. We'll hurry this along here. Yeah. Stop me if you have exciting things to say about this stuff. Poe survived. Yay! Yay! I was glad. To, see, there's an example. You've got a dumb plot thing that lots of dumb cliched movies would spend a lot of time on and they're just like nope we're not going to bore you with how Poe survived you know that he survived because it's the cliche that he survived so let's just have him say like well I was thrown from the thing and I'm too excited to even go into the store and that's it you don't care as an audience member neither do we he's just alive and we're happy about it Uh, and then Jake we've got the moment we've all been waiting for interrogation scene well, no, not not quite yet. We've got more important than that: the reunion of Han and Leia. Oh yeah, the heart of every Star Wars fan was a flutter. There they were, and they had this weird, awkward exposition dump about how Ben was seduced as too had too much Vader in him and was seduced to the dark side. And Leia's like, "You've got to go, let him kill you." Yeah. Well, I don't really know how to talk about this. Let me just try. First of all, the writing's bad. Second of all, it feels like the writing couldn't be better because it feels like Carrie Fisher couldn't have done better. It doesn't feel like she could really sell much of anything. And some of it just is a function of her false teeth. Yeah, well, that's what I'm not quite finding the words to express. A, I don't know how else to say this. She didn't age gracefully, and I don't want to be a jerk about that. But it does make a difference in how you feel about the character. So I feel like it's worth finding a way to talk about here. And B, she her voice doesn't have a lot of modulation in it. It just kind of is in a, a growl now. It's husky and toothy. And it's toothy. It sounds like she has false teeth. And she's not able to really fluctuate Dentures. it in an emotional sort of a way to like sell emotion. And it doesn't feel like she, as an actress and as a human being, really cares or wants to be there all that much. And yes, her mouth does, it does look like something's wrong with her mouth. Um, Dentures is a great theory. So I don't say any of those things. Well, I just know people who talk that way because of dentures. Yeah. So I'm not trying to be ageist or sexist or appearanceist or anything like this, but I just, I want to acknowledge what I think the whole world has had to pretend not to acknowledge, which is that it's kind of hard to watch Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher in this movie. And it's not because... If they had played... If they had let Carrie Fisher be a washed out drunk... Well, it's actually what Ryan Johnson's kind of smart about. He gets a better performance out of Carrie Fisher, I think. And it's because he lets her play a little bit more of a feminist... Yeah, just an obnoxious... She, he lets her play the real Carrie Fisher, the sarcastic... The, the woman that Carrie Fisher became, or mm-hmm. always was, and we just didn't know... But trying to get Carrie Fisher to give you anything like the, the softness that the youthful Carrie Fisher could give you. Yeah, that's really the thing is that the, that kind of sums it all up. She's asked to play soft. In she those doesn't scenes, have it in her. And she just doesn't have it. She just, she's just not that person. 
make whatever judgments you want about that, but it, what doesn't work. It's is, not, it's not that different, uh, than asking what's her face to play. What's his face's mom buyers buyers. Will Will Byers? Who's Will Byers? What's your name? You know. In what? Hang on a second. Oh, Winona Ryder? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I got Will Byers, but I couldn't get Winona Ryder. <laughs> Is Will Byers right? Will, yeah, it's Byers or something like that in Stranger Things. Yeah. Well, the nice what thing is... about her is that Winona Ryder has is turned into kind of a screechy, annoying person, or maybe she but always was. She got was. to be a screechy, annoying mom figure. Yeah, and they, they cast... They, they cast Winona Ryder to play a decent version of Winona Ryder, and I don't like Winona Ryder that much, but it works for Stranger Things okay. With, well, but with, she needed to be more sympathetic. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, well. She needed to be, she needed to have a little bit more maternal yeah. something going on yeah. with her. Yeah, an actual. And she doesn't have anything really maternal. Right. She has to fake it. Winona Ryder's not a mother in real life, and you can, you can, you can tell. You can tell. She doesn't yeah. have the just the she spark of connection with her kids in yeah. the movie that the way that a real mom does, even a bad one. And Carrie Fisher is the same. Yeah. I mean, if people don't way. know, Carrie Fisher lived a pretty hard life. She, she wrote several very sarcastic memoirs about her cocaine use, about her boozing, about her partying back in the day. You about can, you can see her coke meal, nail in, um, Jedi, I think in the Jabba's palace, if you really look for it, you can see her coke nail. She lived a hard life and she became kind of a one of those people that sort of wore it as a badge and became this very sarcastic, mean spirited woman that just mocked everything about Hollywood. Very about, crass lady. Very crass, very vulgar. In the way that lots of lots of women when they get hard and they go crass in an ugly way. Yeah. They adopt a certain mannish vulgarity that's that ought to be beneath them yeah it's really unseemly it's the vulgarity is unseemly in anyone but it's especially unseemly in in somebody who should be a lady yeah i thank you for just saying it i think i was dancing around it a little bit but yeah there's something that one expects uh expects especially of a lady that she comport herself with a certain amount of dignity and Carrie, the last act of Carrie Fisher's life. Say that she can't be down to earth about a whole no, kinds of no, things. No, no, no. But the last act of Carrie's Fisher's life was a middle finger to any kind of maternal, grandmotherly, womanly anything. Her daughter is in the film. Yeah, she plays uh, some random person in the background. Person in the background. Yeah, Billy Lord. Her mother. Yeah, well, her mother is was uh, pretty famous uh, for playing a sweetheart of a woman in uh, old. Singing, Singing in the, the Rain. Debbie uh, Reynolds. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Fisher comes from Hollywood royalty. I mean, she's... That was my point. Yeah. She is that kind... There's a reason that Carrie Fisher would be cynical. And I, you know, we don't have to make this podcast into a deciding about Carrie Fisher podcast. But the point is, you have this really burnt out, sarcastic, cold, hard, vulgar woman who wants to be those things. I don't think she'd disapprove of me saying most of that about her maybe she'd want some slightly different words but basically that's who she is and then she's asked to play they don't even actually give her a lot of like barking orders general scenes kind of stuff they just give her soft scenes with han solo and it just feels like sometimes you have to edit around a performance that's not quite what you want Mm -hmm. i want to say i recognize that Carrie Fisher didn't really bring it and wasn't really there. And they kind of had to make this, you know, there's scenes where it'll kind of linger on Harrison Ford for a while while you hear her voice say something. And it's like, oh, this was, this should actually be her close up, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of sad and 
I don't know. They've talked about the fact that they really wanted Leia to be the next Jedi. I mean, that's how Return of the Jedi kind of ends. Like, it's your sister. She's the other one that's powerful and awesome. And Yeah, and... Ryan Johnson came the closest that he could by having her float comatose through a, a star field. Yep. But the idea of that person actually being any kind of a white lightsaber wielder or... That's what they say was going to be the plan. Yeah, which makes no sense. Nope. I think they only say that because they can say they it. They can say it. Because they didn't actually have to do it. Because yep. they uh, they couldn't have... That's what I think, too. They couldn't have actually done they it. They couldn't have pulled it off. They do have her holding Anakin's lightsaber in a, the new TV spot. Oh, there you go. It'll be interesting to see what they do and if they... Nobody would be happier than me if they get something emotional and good out of her for the whatever leftover footage they had. But, yep. man, it's... Must have had some scene where... Ray was like, look, it's Luke's lightsaber. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. But man, I she doesn't really work that well in this movie. I guess that's the only yeah. point to be made about this movie. Uh, so yeah, Kylo Ray interrogates... Uh, no, Kylo, Kylo Ren interrogates Ray. Did you say Kylo Ray? Yeah, Kylo Ray in, interrogates Ren. Hashtag Kylo Ray. Hashtag Kylo Ray. We've Adam Driver takes off his mask and we get to see Adam Driver and that's probably the moment that lost a lot of you know, people in terms of Kylo liking Kylo Ray. Oh, it's just a that guy. Yep. It's just a pretty boy who's not even pretty. Yep. But I really like it. I I like that he's just a petulant idiot in a bad turtleneck that wishes, you know, that's playing with action figures basically. Mhm. Arrogant cocky wakes Ray up to the power that's within her. Yep, and then she escapes yep. and does an Obi-Wan trick. Does an Obi-Wan trick. That's fun. It's her first, outside of shutting Kylo Ren out of her mind, her first force trick is the first force trick that we ever see on screen. Yep, and she figures out how to do it without anyone telling her, which is yep, kind of weird. Well, she figures out that she can block out Kylo Ren's thoughts, and then she figures out that she can go into Kylo Ren's mind. Then... Maybe she makes a jump that she can control weaker minds. That makes sense. I suppose that makes sense. Uh, then she escapes. Uh, Kylo Ren destroys the little interrogation room, and we get a big laugh when the stormtroopers turn back away. And walk away. Yeah. That's a good joke. That's it's a good funny. Joke. That's a that's a nice moment. And then we go to the control room or whatever it's called, where our resistance heroes within about five <laughs> minutes do the work that Jenna Urso and her friends gave her life for. <laughs> Well, if it's that big, there probably has a thermal oscillator. <laughs> there is. It's right here. Let's zoom in on this diagram that we somehow have of it. <laughs> right. No, oh, we just need to blow up the thermal oscillator. And the oh. Emperor Empire or the, the Resistance, whoever the what are these guys? Oh. The First Order. They've had three tries now, and they couldn't build something with like some nice padding around the thermal oscillator so that. Well, they couldn't do it from the outside. They had to. Han and Chewie had to set charges all on the inside to yeah, bust it open. That's true. And, but, and you have a man on the ground. Well, and then the whole movie of Return of the Jedi is about a shield generator and taking down a shield generator. But yeah. it turns out you can just hyperspace through it. And yeah. It's dangerous, but if you're cool, then... You win. You win. But man, it really did. That was probably the most striking thing about watching this movie again was how... What a middle finger it was to the plots of all other Star Wars movies. How easy... Yeah. All this stuff. It would be like if they made a sequel to like 
Lord of the Rings, and this time they did just hop on the eagles <laughs> to, to, to take right. the ring. <laughs> you know, actually, we just need to get this to the volcano. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> let's get a whole bunch of hobbits and put them on a bunch of eagles, and then yeah, <laughs> and we'll accomplish in the space of about twenty minutes what it took whole movies to, and lots of sacrifice and everything. And then I don't know how much there is to talk about. There's a bunch of action and shooting and space stuff and cool little battle, X-wing battle. Yeah, that was back earlier. I ever since a kid don't care about those dog fights. Independence Day for me was the pinnacle, and the, it might not even be any good, but it came at the right time in my life, and I loved it. It was the pinnacle of dog fighting against I aliens movie. Love dog fight. Well, you are a Top Gun, I'm a Top Gun purist. fan. I'm waiting for the next Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. When's that next trailer coming out? So you'd watch I, like a whole Independence Day. I. I'm a sucker for a good dog fight. I can enjoy a good dog fight. But I like the dog fight. I like the dog fight over the skies of Mascanada's place. And I like when I just, I like that stuff. You know, I've, I went through a phase where like I would, I would look at things and pretend like I was shooting them with my pilot joysticks and make, you know, trees blow up as my mom was never got these. over it. I, I just, I, I was done with that. And I never got I check it. out during dogfight scenes, mostly in movies. I don't know. Uh, we would sit in the floorboards of the car on car trips and imagine that we were in cockpits. And So you still sort of feel uh, the romance of, of Poe Dameron absolutely. being like the best pilot in the absolutely. galaxy and all that stuff. Absolutely. If I were in a go-kart, I'd be just as likely to imagine myself flying a fighter jet. Well, there you go. I'm glad. I mean, I know that they work. It's kind of like those Cars movies. Kids love them. I don't understand it, but kids love them. Dogfight movies, certain kind of person really likes. Not for me, but this movie's got it, and you like it, and that's go with blessings on there. We've got Han. I guess we have really just two more things to talk about, Han and Kylo, and then uh, yeah, Ray versus Kylo and, yeah. at the end. So mm-hmm. Han, Han meets Kylo on that just bridge. Just like we predicted. Mm-hmm. Move on. Yeah, there's nothing to say. It's not that interesting. Did you cry? No. I mean, the whole world cried, Jake. False. Han Solo just Uh, got killed. Han Solo died at the end of Empire. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Let's be honest. Bumbling stick (laughs) stepper on her guy. (laughs) Took his place in return. (laughs) Got a lightsaber in the gut. Yeah. Um, it's a nice it's nice when he reaches up and puts his hand on his face it's a nice touch and uh, I mean I don't know the, not, it's not that creative or anything they, no, they could have built nice that touch. scene it's a, a nice lot more yeah, but. it's fine I will just go back on record saying I understand why it had to be that way mm-hmm. but I'd have rather have just had if we were gonna get rid of Han and we, the one risk that and I'm willing to admit that this is stupid but for whatever reason, my heart's just been set on this being the one risk that I wish JJ would have taken. And it's that I wish that Han and Chewie would have dive bombed the Millennium Falcon into that thermal oscillator and kept Poe Dameron from doing it or something like that. And made space for Ray and Finn to escape and let them go out together and take the Falcon off the table and have to come up with a new ship. Well, it's kind of like in the first movie, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want Darth Vader to shoot Obi Wan. You know, Obi Wan needs to go out in a lightsaber fight, right. and Han Solo he either needs to go out in a spaghetti western shootout, or he needs to go out in the Millennium Falcon. And that's bombing. what I, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. I wanted that to be the risk, the thing that happened. 
But I understand. Um, you got to get those two characters face to face if that's the story you're telling. You've got to get them face to face and you've got to let, if you're setting up a Kylo Ren redemption story and let's not pretend that that, that we've not been, then he's going to need things working on his conscience and he's going to need to take it. If he's on his own hero's journey, even if it's a hero's journey to the dark side, he's still got to face and kill the father. That's a Joseph Campbell thing. And he's got to look at the father in the eyes. and All of that's got to happen. If he's going to make a turn and go from being petulant to true evil, uh, truly evil bad guy, like he's going to have to have that kind of step mm-hmm. in the process. Now, it undoes him, which is convenient. Because it allows for some final third act drama. Oh, in this movie, yeah. Yeah, I I don't in any way question that Abrams was like, well, how are we going to have a lightsaber battle with this guy and these untrained people? The way that Will makes sense of it is he, first of all, he gets shot. Like, he gets shot. He bends over backwards. He has Chewie shoot him in the chest. He has him kill Han Solo. He, and he's got the emotional trauma of having just, yeah, just killed his father while Starkiller base is being destroyed around him. Mm-hmm. And so it sacks the, the deck against him so that Finn can handle him. And then we play the Finn scene where it looks more like Kylo Ray is just toying with him. Kylo Ren. You did it to me. I blame you. That's all your fault. <sighs> Kylo Ren is, <laughs> yeah, he's, but then, you know, Boyega gets his shots in mm-hmm. on him, and then Ray does the thing. And Oh, that's the other thing. What's that? Is it just that Ray was stronger in pulling the lightsaber, force pulling the lightsaber to herself, or did the lightsaber want to go to her hands? I guess we'll find out. What do you think about the last lightsaber fight taken as a set piece? It was fine. It was also set up with Ren telling Snoke that she's just now figuring things out and mm. every or and then telling somebody else to like double or triple the guard or whatever every minute that goes by or every hour or every day or whatever it is right. she gets stronger eh, it's fine i actually liked it better this time i remember the first time that i saw it just being disappointed because it was obvious that they were going back to the old style and as i've said many times i really liked the super powered fights from the yeah prequels. but it makes sense. These two characters to. are untrained and finding their own way. And yeah, well, Rin's not untrained. Let's. I don't care what they say. The kid grew up and. But he's at least the wild card. I mean, they they have that nice touch. I think of him having the shoulder wound that he keeps hitting to give yep. himself power. He's he's mad and he's unpredictable yep. and he's got a lightsaber that's not well built for whatever reason. So there's that, and then Ray's just. It's a corrupted regular lightsaber. Yeah. Because he bled it. That's too bad. Gotta be careful with those things. Well, they either go red because you're red, or you bleed them to make them go red. Wow. So he's he's really trying hard, this guy. Yeah. Interesting. At least that's my understanding. Well, there you go. I, I take your... You're, you're the expert. Um, that's That stuff is not anywhere in any of the... That's stuff that I read. Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia. Wikipedia or whatever. That's a fine, it's a fine fight scene, I guess. J.J. Abrams knows knows enough to keep it in the dark in a nice snowy woods, so those lightsabers really pop. And probably not worth saying at this point, but 
the the essential egalitarian the stupid egalitarianism of modern movie fights really pops to out at me in certain moments and the one in here is where they're wrestling they both have their arms on you know they're they're basically both holding hands struggling for the lightsabers and he's a big dude and she's just this little shrimp of a girl 19 year old girl and but the force but the force yes i know the well force. that's when actually he reminds her of the force and that's when the tide is turned yep i can show you the ways of the force the force oh yeah i can tap it i haven't been using force powers at all i've been just being awesome yeah <laughs> <laughs> I sure am great. <laughs> also, something people can notice that I did only noticed because it was pointed out in a podcast called, uh, what's the name of that music podcast I like? Art of the Score. Art of the Score. They use a bit of source music from the old Star Wars in that scene when, you want to guess? Like they just play a cue. They, they did not re-record it. They just use a cue from old Star Wars somewhere in that final confrontation. It's pretty obvious. Not when she pulls the saber to herself? It is. The yeah. force theme plays. And if you know to listen for it, you can really hear the orchestration is a lot different. And it's because they're using like the original Obi-Wan. And I think if, if I remember the story, it's that John Williams actually used Ray's theme or he used something else. And it just they just said, come on, John, we need to let's just press the button here. Let's not try and be clever. And so they didn't even have him re-record it. They just grabbed some the old force theme and stuck it in there. It's a much less lush arrangement than what you actually hear in modern Star Wars. The recording technology just wasn't the same. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. She goes and sees Luke and R2-D2 comes back alive. Yeah. Too bad he didn't do that a long time Hashtag ago. Tag Deus Ex Machina. Probably could have spared some lives and saved everybody a lot of trouble if R2-D2 hadn't decided to go into a depressed funk when his master disappeared. But Well, he was searching his memory banks or something like that. Oh, is that, that what he was doing? Okay. I think that's the the way that it's implied. I could be wrong. Fair enough. I wasn't paying too close attention, but my memory is these like C-3PO's like R2-D2 wakes up and C-3PO, of course, just happens to be there. And he's like, what do you mean you found it? You know, implying that he's in low power mode, mm-hmm. searching all his archives or something like that. Yep. And you can read a comic book if you want to know how C-3PO got his red arm. My understanding is that's told in one of the comic books, so be sure and seek that out. One of the long-standing Star Wars jokes is C-3PO always has some mismatched part. Right. And that's nothing new. Nope. Uh, Ray goes and stands next to Luke. The music swells. Camera spins around Camera him. spins around. It is the softest paddest fattest pitch to the next filmmaker all they got to do is connect with that ball yep impossible to screw up impossible and yet <laughs> <laughs> the light rises and the, and the darkness, darkness to meet it <laughs> <laughs> oh brother well what do you think about force awakens we've talked all the way through it it was everything that it needed to be and not a penny more no, it certainly doesn't take a lot of risks. Might as well Kylo Ren. I, I, I maintain that Kylo Ren's a good creation and an interesting character, and he's fun in this movie. Just the scene where he is worshiping uh, Darth Vader's helmet is pretty good. I always wonder, is, is Anakin's More skull in there? Box. I think Anakin's skull is... Anakin's decapitated skull <laughs> is just rotting inside that thing. Nope. I don't. I hope not. He's probably born, burned. Maybe the the suit with can withstand more heat than the the body can i don't know maybe it was just the suit that was burned and his body was disappeared yeah that could be well i guess we'll find out i hope we'll find out 
You pointed out to me, Jake, that a new line of Darth Vader toys have been released alongside some of the other. I was just at Walmart the other day, and there is a display, and the display had a bunch of toys from the new movie, including that new droid. The I forget whatever its name is. I have no idea. It's the wheel, little wheelie droid with the cone head. Mm-hmm. So on the front side of the display, it's like all the stuff from the new movie. It had Ray lightsabers, and it had Darth Vader lightsabers. Mm. On the back side of it, it had some like prequel stuff, and it had like a Luke lightsaber. Yeah, so maybe it was just a mis- mix and match. And so maybe it was just mix and match, and maybe it was just all a thing. But I walked up to it, and I just saw on one side all stuff from the new movie and also Darth Vader stuff. Right. Maybe Darth Vader stuff just still sells. Entirely possible. But let, let me just say this. If Darth Vader is in the new movie, yep. there are people at the toy companies who know this and they are gearing up Heck yeah. to sell a lot of Darth Vader merch. Hence why I took the picture and sent it to you. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean something. There, it, were, there were more Darth Vader lightsabers than there were Rey. Mm-hmm. There were more Darth Vader things. Probably just because people love Rey so much that they bought all the Rey lightsabers. Yeah, probably. It's circumstantial evidence, but it's pretty interesting circumstantial evidence. Like, in a world where Darth Vader is about to hit the scene in a big way, the toy companies are gearing up right now. And even the stuff on the backside, uh, the prequel stuff, was like little Anakin and Obi-Wan figurines. Wow. That's that's actually all it was, was Anakin and Obi-Wan there you go, prequel so. figurines. Maybe we know that all and, those... And, and Yoda. All three but, of them. But Anakin and Obi-Wan were packaged together. Well, we'll see. I make it a point not to look at toys because toys can actually... Tell too much. Yeah. It'll be like time traveling Captain America or something like right. that. Like, oh, well, I guess they're doing time travel. Well, it, I mean, it, go to Walmart and you'll see if you go to Walmart towards... It's right there by like... It's right there by the chips and Coke and beer and alcohol mm-hmm. section in the aisle. And there it is. The only section that Jake needs... That's all I need. At Walmart. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, that's not true, folks. What is true is that The Force Awakens is a movie that we have managed to talk well over two hours about, which I always knew that these would be the longest ones because they're There's stuff to say about. They're interesting them. to talk about, whatever, whether you like the movies or not. Just wait till we get to Last Jedi, baby. Oh man, I think we're gonna. I think we should just aim for three hours. I, th- I think we should just we should pick that movie. My my theory is if we're gonna do Star Wars at all, something that's been so thoroughly picked over, then we, we might have, as well do it all the way. We have to We have to really go for it. Yeah, we can't. There's no halfway measures with Star Wars. And so I hope people enjoy. Hey, you, can, you don't have to listen to it all in one sitting, folks. You can listen to a little bit on your drive and listen to a little bit more and kind of think about it. And that's the joy of podcasts. I like long podcasts and I like them for that reason. So I make no apologies for this. I think this is a fun movie to talk about. And there's things to say and we've said them. And how many lightsabers out of seven would you give to The Force Awakens, Jake? Five. Five lightsabers? Yeah. I think that's fair. Almost too high. I think I'd give it four lightsabers. I mean, well, I don't know. It's pretty good, I guess. I think there's nothing offensive about it. It doesn't really do I almost good. gave it four and a half. I want to <laughs> give it more than halfway, Mark. I think if you're looking at the number of... We can fault Abrams all we want for not taking risks. But the fact is, taking the project was an insane risk. Like, to take... The net, the, there is no franchise until Marvel mm-hmm. created Mar- the MCU. There, there is nothing in the history of film right. that 
touches Star Wars in terms of iconography, fan passion, expectations, everything. Right. It is the only equivalent that you could come up with is donning the red cape or the black cowl on screen Mm -hmm. or, or, or the clown get up. Yep. And, you know, when Heath Ledger took the role of the Joker, it was an insane risk. Yep. Daniel Craig walking into James Bond after Daniel Craig walking Pierce into Brosnan James had a successful Bond. financially lucrative run. It, it, insane risk. There are all kinds of taking the project was an insane risk. Mm-hmm. Managing to create a movie that very few people could genuinely hate. And really, when you got down to brass tacks, there are basically only two things you could hate about it. And one is that the protagonist is a woman, and the other is that it didn't take enough risks for you, but probably you would have hated whatever risks it took. Mm-hmm. Hashtag Last Jedi. I mean, we 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 fall by this sword. That's actually. exactly right. Um, and so I do hate that the protagonist is a woman. By the way, in case people didn't know that. But yeah, I think you wrote a letter to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but uh, I don't know. People can go to Sound of Sanity's uh, podcast feed and listen to a little episode called something or other called S- something with Star Wars in the title. And we will talk about uh, yeah. my open letter to Ray, which I got in a lot of trouble for talking about female protagonists and action movies and why they are silly and unbiblical. Um, and people were not happy about that. Th- those are the only two things that he gave you mm-hmm. to really, truly hate. I think what you could say is... Disney has not used the template that he made. You know, he he gave them a safe a safety net. He gave them a, a sturdy foundation. They have not proceeded to build boring things on that foundation. They've built some asinine things like Last Jedi. But Last Jedi, for all its faults, not boring is not boring, and it is a creative risk. So yeah. Kathleen Kennedy, lover or hater, she did say, "All right, JJ, build a foundation, and then we'll do the interesting stuff." And she's been true to that i think they the mandalorian is fun it's interesting last jedi the mandalorian is, is the future of star wars it is it is but you know the mandalorian's good and insofar as what it's doing is what it's doing it's it's got a vision and it's got a idea behind it um it, it's got a vision it's got an idea it's got its risks and it happens to be in an insanely low risk medium right like Disney's new streaming service. It's going to succeed. The, the Mandal- if the Mandalorian <coughs> flops on Disney's new streaming service, they're doing something so wrong. So what? Right. Right? Like Disney Plus is still going to succeed. It doesn't hang or fall on the Mandalorian. Star Wars doesn't hang or fall. Star Wars can pretend like, yeah, well, you know what else was released with the release of Disney Plus? The new Lady in the Tramp movie. Right. Jeff Goldblum versus the world or whatever. Or whatever that's called. Yeah. yeah it's... It's low stakes, but it succeeds. You've got a whole new world of possibilities and a, in, a really nice uh, driver of traffic to Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. A whole new uh, world, a whole new different point of view. The, su- uh, the, the suits were just, I have, I have to believe the suits were just like, you know, we need a new Baby Yoda meme mm-hmm. in every episode so that every week... The sucker is trending with a new gif or mm-hmm. a new shot. But see, I'm all for that. I'm all for let's be smart, right? Let's be smart in the places where our business is cynical so that we can buy ourselves the freedom to be creative where it's interesting. So you want to make a show where your protagonist just has his helmet on 
for four episodes in a row and we never see his face, which is quite a creative risk, actually. Fine. Fine. But you're going to have a cute little <laughs> <laughs> little baby alien. Little baby alien. And he's going to be drinking out of a cup this week. <laughs> <laughs> what will they think of next? That's smart. That's smart. I like, honestly, this is going to be the weirdest thing. You've heard a lot of weird things on this episode mm. of this show. But probably in 2019, few things will have done more to see a population increase in 2020 than The Mandalorian. Yeah. Baby Yoda babies. Baby Yoda has made women want babies and made men want babies. I guarantee it. Well, that's Force Awakens. And thanks for listening, folks. The Sanity at the Movies was. Produced by me, executive produced by the two of us. Go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity to support us. We will be doing some behind the paywall episodes of Sanity at the Movies there after the new year. And until next time, these are your first steps.